Welcome to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast that covers all the horror franchises, one movie and one episode at a time. I am your host, Mike Snoonian, and I'm on first. What's on second? I don't know, but he writes for Bloody Disgusting and Manor Vellum, and he co-hosts the Movies for Life podcast. Hello, Mr. Brian Kuyper. I I wish I could give a witty retort there, but I just don't have that in me right now <laughs> sorry to that's, say. Okay. that's all right well that's all right because on third base i forgot how the rest of the routine goes and i'm not even gonna lie about that but from the disenfranchised podcast mr stephen foxworthy see when you said that who's on second i don't know i wanted to scream third base because i don't know who's on third Excellent. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third, which is why I put in the on the sheet there. If that was intentional, that's hilarious. See, um, you would think I would go back and watch the routine ahead no, of. No, I would not. Why would we do that? that? <laughs> what I did do is watch a lot of Three Stooges. Oh, naturally. Direct, like, direct line. Because I love the Three Stooges. Yeah. And I oh, introduced yeah. my daughter to Mo, Larry, and Curly uh, mm. after, because I, I probably watched this movie like four times like in the past week and a half ahead of recording, because it's brilliant and I love it, because we're here to wrap up our two-month foray into classic horror with the last Universal Frankenstein movie, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, or Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Frankenstein, I guess, depending on whether you're reading the box art or looking at the movie credit. So there you go. Uh, yeah, right. but I choose to call it Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is a Absolutely. fun one. And we're ending on a high note, which we don't often get to do with <laughs> franchises. Usually by the time you get to the eighth movie in a series, you're getting to kind of like one of the lower tier entries it's kind of like well this was a slog you know to get through by the end you're getting to like halloween resurrection Mm -hmm. by the by this point and it's kind of a tough go but this is going to be a really fun one to talk about i think this one's a really brilliant piece of business yeah hell yeah it's kind of interesting you know this this series it kind of dips in the middle and comes back up it does yeah so yeah and there are no you know ghosts of frankenstein notwithstanding mm-hmm. like there are no like poor movies you know, yeah even like the house movies yeah. i think are a lot of fun like they're just goofy can't be fun to talk about they're silly yeah i mean this is a including ghost is one that hey i i'd watch it again it's it's i'd yeah. watch it in the series if i was uh gonna do a franchise rewatch i wouldn't skip it which right. I'm sure you will, which I'm sure at some point it'll probably happen. Yeah. I can't, I, I can't imagine. I would imagine Brian, one day you'll be like 95. You'll be lying on your, you know, your final resting place. Mm-hmm. You'll be surrounded by friends and family and loved ones and say, okay, 
this is it. And when I go out, put on Frankenstein for me. I want the last thing I watch as I go off into no. the, wow, we got dark. We got really yeah, well, dark. It could be though. I mean, I, I, but maybe it will inspire them to, you know, like hook me up to electrodes and bring me back to life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, as it should. We can hope, yeah. you know. That's all so any of us can I'm hope curious. for. You know, and my wife will have me hooked up to a machine to make sure that did you sign the life insurance? <laughs> make sure and you've got sure all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And, yeah. <laughs> and, who could, yeah. and who could blame her? Yeah. Who could blame her? <laughs> that wow, now we got dark. <laughs> Uh, well, it's it's, it's a, only appropriate that we are uh, starting this episode with some laughter, though, right? It it really is. Yeah, it is. So I'm curious is is before we kind of dive into the movie proper, like what's all our familiarity with like the comedy of Abbott and Costello outside of this film? And you know, both of you guys are much more plugged in to classic film and classic comedy. I think than I am for all, although like I was weaned on some of these things. So mm-hmm. I'm curious as to where you both stand when it comes to stuff like Abbott and Costello before we talk the movie and Brian, how about yourself? Uh, well, I, this was definitely my first encounter with Abbott and Costello. There's no question about it. I'm pretty sure I saw the, uh, there's this, I've mentioned it before. I think this uh, universal videotape that was just a bunch of trailers of their movies stuck together. Mm-hmm. And um, it was called coming soon. And it sort of went on the back lot and the tour and stuff like that, but then also had all these trailers and some of them were old. Some of them were new and um, I remember distinctly Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein being one of the trailers on there. So that was probably really my first exposure proper at all to them. Um, of course, years later, there was here's on who's on first. Um, I know I saw this probably after Frankenstein, but before Dracula, or the Wolfman. And I was really wanting to see those movies. So this was my first chance to sort of see those monsters in a movie rather than just in the picture book that I always was looking at because I would go to the library and check out all those uh, monster books. Um, But to be honest with you, um, I'm not sure Abbott and Costello is really the brand of humor I gravitated toward. I, I love when it comes to like the classic comedy, I love uh, sort of the really, I don't know. I love the Marx brothers. I love WC fields. I love Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd. Um, this is a a very slapstick brand of humor. Not that there isn't slapstick in those, but there's something about it. That's, I don't know, a little different. Um, and, uh, but I really do love this movie. And, uh, so it was a lot of fun to revisit it. I haven't seen a lot of the others in the monster cycle. I've seen, Mm -hmm. Uh, Abbott and Costello meet the invisible man, but I think that's it. I think that's the only other Abbott and Costello movie I've seen besides this one. Uh, my first exposure to Abbott and Costello, I didn't realize was exposure to Abbott and Costello cause I was a, a Looney Tunes kid growing up. So, um, it's actually the Looney Tunes characters, Babbitt and Catstello. Oh ah, yeah. Were my, wow, were my first okay. exposure. 
Yeah, to Abbott and Costello. Uh, I was a Three Stooges kid growing up. I devoured the Three Stooges, but like I didn't really have exposure to any of the other great comedy uh, acts or teams of the time. So I didn't really engage with the Marx Brothers, didn't really engage with Abbott and Costello. Um, I came to a lot of those significantly later. Um, I also have not seen much Abbott and Costello outside of this. Honestly, I think this is the only film of theirs I've seen, but I discovered who's on first in my um, forensics team in high school. I, mm. I, of course, did forensics because I am a huge nerd. Um, no, no shame, but, you know, it's where it is. Um, and there was always some poor kid at a competition who would try to do that, like by himself, try to do both parts. And the thing about that sketch is the timing is so like precise that one person cannot pull it off. And so invariably it would just be this one kid like turning to himself and going, who's on first? What? Who? That's what I'm asking. The guy on first. Right. Like it, it just, it never, it never works without two people. So I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I saw someone Um, try to do this even as a duo and uh, they didn't have enough time to prepare. Let's put it that way. And yeah. it it when it falls apart, it falls apart. So you got you got yeah, yeah. it, the timing is so precise, and it really is a brilliant sketch. It is. It's one of those things that they just had to go over it like time. And that I think is the beauty of Abbott and Costello's comedy. From what I know of it, is it's a lot of these kind of like really quick, just whip crack back and forth mm-hmm. kind of exchanges. Like that's where the comedy is. It's it's a, a lot of these like little verbal tricks and things. And this movie, I think, does a lot of those really well. Yeah. Uh, but I think later, from what I understand, later entries in the monster cycle kind of get away from that and start to lean in a little more to the slapstick stuff, which doesn't really play to their strengths. Yeah. I don't think people... Est- I don't think people take into consideration how much like doing vaudeville and radio... Mm-hmm built up that ability to have that style of pattern because it's so mm-hmm. fast. It's so quick. And you're right. Like the timing is like perfect. And like the, like the way that like Bud Abbott is able to set lines up for Lou Costello. Like he just like has these moments set up perfectly for Costello to knock them down. And you can't underestimate that. And I think we'll talk about that when we, go into the movie, but I'm curious because like you said, Brian, like you're a Marx Brothers guy. Um, How would you differentiate between like if you were to explain to someone like the classic comedy of like the Stooges versus the Marx Brothers versus Abbott and Costello, what would you say would like differentiate them to fans? Like what would set them apart versus say like, you know, the other duo I would say is the Honeymooners. Like art. Oh, sure. There you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, well, with the Marx Brothers, what I think you have is um, every brand of humor you can think of in this team. I mean, especially when you think of what, take out Zeppo, because he was the straight man of that group and did and not a good and, thing. And, yeah, and it didn't really work. It wasn't really needed. Um, where you, with, with Groucho, you have that super fast patter, really intelligent kind of, in, in a way, just like... Um, so smart that it goes over your head half the time kind of humor with um, with Groucho. And then Chico is more of the, I don't know, he's the man of the people, I guess. He, um, he, he sort of speaks mm-hmm. on that level. And then Harpo is silent. He's the silent clown. And you put those three together 
and you really get moments of brilliance. And I think um, the Groucho patter usually comes with someone who is not one of the other brothers. It's usually, you know, a foil of some sort. Um, there's an actress that they always had in their movies that they always went off of. Uh, I think Buster Keaton, um, yeah, his his physical, it was physical humor, but um, the the fact that he did it complete with, there's no sentimentality at all to his movies. I mean, the old stone face thing, um, it's just funny. I mean, I, I don't know how to describe the genius of Buster Keaton, in my opinion. It's just, to me, he's one of the ultimate film geniuses of all time. And he's pure physical comedy. Yeah. Buster Keaton. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's all it's stunts, it's stunt work, it's gag work. And he was meticulous about yeah. it and he would just plan that stuff so meticulously. Yeah. And it, he it, almost killed it himself more than once. So like broke his back yeah. on Sherlock Jr. I think I yeah, read he somewhere he off off a, like decades later. Yeah. He, there's a famous story where he, um he, he's on a, one of those train things that brings the, the water down, he falls off of mm-hmm. it and then he gets up and he runs after the train. Well, uh, he had apparently broken his back and he didn't know it. And he just kept going. Uh, and decades later they did a x-ray of him and the doctor asked, when did you break your back? And he said, I never broke my back. And, uh, so, well, it was on the x-ray anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and then, you know, like Chaplin, uh, I think is, a lovely filmmaker. I love his movies. Uh, there is a sentimentality to a lot of his films though. Um, right. they're, they're meant to make you cry too. Uh, that he is the romantic yeah, of the group for sure. Yeah. And then Her- Harold Lloyd, I think, you know, he's really gained a lot of steam in the past, uh, I don't know, decade or so. And for good reason, cause he really has some great work too. Of course, the iconic, you know, him hanging off the clock, you know, is one of the most famous shots in cinema history. But um, I mean, what you have by the sound era, though, I mean, you have the banter and then you obviously don't have that in the silent era. So the Marx Brothers sort of started that, the, their vaudeville routine. Uh, they were timing it in the movie. They had the their space for laughs. Those movies are meant to see be seen in a crowd uh, because mm-hmm. um, you're supposed to, because as a group, you laugh. And if they don't wait long enough, you miss the joke. So there, those things are built right into the movies, which is kind of weird, um, but it's kind of an interesting fact. But um, Abena Costello just sort of took that into the into the um, next era of the sound film era, um, where you can really um, hear the banter happen, and it um, there's no breaks. I mean, it's just it just moves and moves and moves. Um, and if you miss it, you come back and you see the movie again. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So that's and how you sell tickets, a, folks. Yeah. And they had a, a solid decade of like working vaudeville, working live radio. Radio was a big like thing. Doing too, yeah. like their own. Yeah. Doing their own radio programs and guesting mm-hmm. on a lot of radio. So they're kind of working that before. Like I think it's like 1940 is when they do their first movie. And then by like 1941, they're doing like four or five movies that year. And they're like the number two or number three largest box office draw for Universal. And they're just like off to the races at that point Mm -hmm. for like a solid decade. Like they're, when you look at 
where they were positioned in terms of like box office draw that first half of the decade, they're like number two, number three, number two, like every year they're right at the top of the charts. And then they kind of fall off a bit. And then after this movie, they have like another few years, like near the top before they start to fall off again. Um, And it's all, you know, kind of built off the built off the back of like developing that pattern. I know for me, like my, family, my dad in particular. Um, my dad grew up lost, watching a lot of Abbott and Costello, watching the Honeymooners. Like I have like specific memories, like on Saturday afternoons, you know, my dad would like cook dinner for the family after doing the grocery shop. And he would just like break out into the Jackie Gleason stomp in the kitchen, mm. like just break into dance. Um, and we would watch the three stooges together every Saturday and Sunday morning. Uh, and every new year's Eve, we would watch the three stooges marathon together. Uh, it would start at like 8 PM on channel on WSPK channel 38. Mm-hmm. And we would watch that until it would end around like two o'clock in the morning. We'd watch six hours of the stooges together growing up. So I have a lot of memories of watching Abbott and Costello movies as a kid, especially at my grandmother's house at her apartment in Lawrence, where my dad grew up with his like three brothers. And I remember the who's on first routine. But to be honest, I cannot pick out a single skit from Abbott and Costello out apart from who's on first in this movie. Whereas I could walk you through dozens of three stooges routines and sketches even without having watched them for years. And like this week, I actually went back and watched probably like a dozen Stooges shorts with uh, my family just for shits and giggles. And they hold up like to me, the, I think the three Stooges are underappreciated in terms of not just being like slapstick comics, which is what they're best known for, but like the verbal banter as Mm. well. And the timing they get, uh, and I, when you watch Lou Costello in this movie, he is pulling a lot of like Curly Howard. He is like aping Curly Howard directly. A lot of the physical comedy he's doing, a lot of the verbal tics he's doing were lifted directly from Curly Howard. Um, and he's good at it. He's yeah. great. That was so kind of his 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 niche, though. I mean, yeah. that was one of the things that he that he was kind of known for mm-hmm. doing. You know, um, uh, and there there are. I'm sorry. Brian, no, no. I was just going to say a little uh, a connection between the Universal Monsters and the Three Stooges. Shemp Howard appears mm-hmm. in The Invisible Woman. That's mm-hmm. just a little tidbit for you. It is one of the weirdest okay. things that biggest surprises. I was like, oh my gosh, it's Shemp that. Howard. Uh, that really <laughs> surprised me when I saw that so, movie. <laughs> so I... I'd be interested because I actually last night after rewatching this movie for the show, I watched with my daughter who really enjoyed it. Like she got a kick out of this movie. Like she thought it was a hoot. Um, I went because uh, Peacock has the Abbott and Costello show on their network. Oh, like two seasons. at run. And, you know, running, we have it commercial free and it was great. Like I watched the first episode and, it was a riot like that. And it has that. They're a little bit older, like it's from 1951, 52. Mm-hmm. So they're a little older. They're a little grayer, but like they still have that impeccable timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically them bringing their radio sketches to life. 
Um, so it was like, I, I be very interested in kind of like going through those seasons. And I think Brian, you noted shout factory has a box set of all of their universal films yeah. in one collection yeah. and it's think, down to a hundred. Is that how much it is? Yeah. I don't think it has the monster ones in it. Cause those are part of the other it collections. Does. Oh, it does. Oh, it does. I'm looking at it right awesome. now. I, I, did, I, I wasn't yeah. sure. That's great. Yeah. Well, I know what Brian's doing as soon as this recording. Well, I've, I keep yeah. hearing about that set over and over again. And, and from fans of, you know, classic comedy, I'm like, this is kind of yeah. a must get kind of, kind of series. So meets it, uh, meet Frankenstein. It has the commentary from uh, Greg William Mank. Oh. Uh, meet the killer Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm with a commentary from uh, Troy Howarth, meet the invisible man, goes to Mars, meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, meet the mummy. Um, what I am I missing say, here? Meet the mummy, I think was their last one from right. for Universal. So it has 14, 15 discs all together oh, wow. with like disc 15 being like bonus discs, like runtime. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, for a hundred bucks, like that seems, you know, like a nice way to spend a rainy spring afternoon. So I'm thinking that might be right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Just to kind of dive into, even though I'm a Stooges guy, like I, in the Stooges, like 22, you know, 16 to 20 minutes of short. Sure. Um, and I remember watching those watch. as a kid on uh, TBS or something like that mm-hmm. and, and having a good time with them. I don't know if they've stuck with me in the same way they stick they with hold- a lot of people, but um, they, I know they'd be worth revisiting. So I had script books like oh, the wow. three stooges script books i was oh my gosh in. i had like the biographies um and you read the biographies of like lou costello the three uh curly howard mo howard larry i think larry fine is the finest straight man of all time i think larry fine and bud abbott is right up there with him. i was gonna say bud's got to be a real close second He's right up there with him um their comedy and tragedy are so intrinsically linked with one another. It's what we're going to kind of talk about here as we talk about the history of Abbott and Costello. Um, it's very, very sad. Yeah. Very, very sad. <laughs> as we laugh. As we laugh. As we laugh. I know. Well, I mean, that's, they <laughs> seems like comedians are so often some of the most tragic figures. Yeah. No, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times the way to keep your demons at bay is to make everyone else around you laugh so they don't notice how bad you're hurting. Yeah. So let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit, (laughs) shall we? Shall we talk about the making of this movie one last time down the Frankenstein's lab to see how this movie was cobbled together through the the dead parts, the reanimated tissue that was made to make a Frankenstein movie? The The, reanimated corpses of two different franchises, it looks like. Oh, my goodness. Barely a Frankenstein movie once, once again. again. <laughs> but he's got a little yeah. more screen time in this one than he does in either Dracula, House of Dracula or House not of Frankenstein, much. but not much. He has a little, not a he has a little scene with, with, with Lou there, you know, it, yes. sitting in the, in the throne. Mm-hmm. Such a good, <laughs> such a good bit. All right. With the hand. Yeah. So after House of Dracula, 
Universal slows down, if not altogether stops producing new horror pictures for a while. We talked a little bit about this on our last episode. By 46, Universal partnered with British entrepreneur J. Arthur Rank, which what a name, to form Universal International. He is one of we, the we greats, need... though. I mean, that, that whole gong and all that stuff, The I mean... Mm-hmm. Pressburger and Powell and all kinds of things. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So gave us Pinewood Studios yeah, when they made Star Wars. Yeah. Like, so yeah. I mean, it's actually it's quite a history. <laughs> Got to say, he's he is the guy. So yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about this history a bit because it sounds like what the idea was in theory was the Universal wanted to stop like churning out so many movies. Like, let's not make 50 movies a year. Let's cut that to like 25 movies a year. But let's be like, and they didn't say this because they don't have a crystal ball. Let's be the A24 of our day. (laughs) Um, They want to make prestige pictures. They want to be like an elevated studio. Which is so They want to win Oscars. Well, the thing is, what's so funny about Universal is they've never been the prestige studio. I mean, they no. have always been the genre studio. They made one best picture winner in their history, all quiet on the Western front. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, it's, it's interesting. And they've been nominated since then jaws, et cetera, but interesting. They got nominated for a genre picture. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, obviously there are other films as well, but I just find that fascinating. Um, it's sort of like, uh, MGM was the studio that was winning all the Oscars or you had Selznick mm-hmm. and his, you know, little independent run, you know, right. like that, that's what won Oscars is those things. And so I just, I don't know, I guess I find it a little funny that universal was like, um, we've had all this success with our genre films not just horror, you know, Westerns, uh, yeah. noir, um, to some extent, gangster, though that was more Warner Brothers territory. Um, but Westerns especially are, were like, that was their bread and butter. They were making a bank on this stuff to say, okay, forget it. We want to be respected. Um, yeah. Which I, I get it. You know, I mean, I get it, that too. Um, and, you know, there is a storied history. I mean, they did have Eric Von Stroheim as one of their prestige mm-hmm. directors. Uh, back in the teens uh, and 20s. So, I mean, there's history there, but I think, um, I don't know what I'm trying to go with this. Maybe you can save me from my rant here. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I just I just don't, I think, I, I, find, I do find it a little bit like, it was an interesting move, I guess. It feels like a betrayal in a lot of ways because Universal is essentially the house that horror built. Yep. Um, they, they, it was built on the back of, I mean, Lemley, we talked about it early on, like Lemley kind of saved Universal with Dracula and Frankenstein and kind of put them on the map. So, yeah. and it's been and a with successful franchise. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> but that's been a successful franchise for them for 20 years. Yeah, that's right. So, or going on 20 years, I guess at this point, probably not quite there yet. In fact, they stop before they really get there. Um, but so the shift kind of veers into, I don't know. It just feel, it feels like it's flying in the face of every bit of financial sense that they've ever made as an organization. Well, they're starting to get pushback from theater owners by the time mm. House of Dracula comes out. Like theater owners are saying, 
the only people that are coming to these movies are kids and kids are kind of like loud and rambunctious and tearing up the theater. And the parents that do come are complaining about the movies. Like they're too scary. They're too nasty. These aren't the kind of movies we want our kids to see. So you're getting this pushback from theater Mm -hmm. owners anyway. Mm -hmm. And theater owners are starting to only show these movies kind of like later at night when kids can't go see them. So you're starting to like not make as much money on them anyway. And then the other thing that is starting to happen is Universal starts to kind of compete against themselves because as they're releasing like House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, The Mad Ghoul, and like their 1940s output, um, they start re-releasing their classic movies like Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, The Invisible Man. They start, as they're slowing down their output in terms of new movies, they start re-releasing their older movies back into circulation because there's no television, there's no syndication. So they have all these movies in the vault that are like, we might as well make some money off of these movies. And they're very successful. Like audiences are lining up to either see them for the first time or to get that hit of nostalgia. Like, oh, I love this movie as a kid. I'm going to bring my own kid to it or I'm going to go watch this again uh, and see if it still holds up. Like that is something as old as time itself. And it's part of why Bela Lugosi couldn't get film roles in the mid to late 40s because he was competing against himself. He would say, no one is hiring me. I haven't been in movies in years. But in the meantime, Dracula, Murders in the Room Morgue, The Vampire Bat, all of these movies, they're in circulation all the time. So audiences are getting their fill of him. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't really need to see him in any new movies because he's always on the big screen anyway. And Universal is saying- In better roles. You know, he's he's Mm -hmm. so great in- (laughs) in that original Dracula and, you know, in, um, uh, maybe not so much murders in the room work, but you know, (laughs) in a, in a lot of those movies, those are what people really see him as sort of the height of his strengths Mm -hmm. as an actor, at least on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're universal, you're saying it costs us zero dollars to produce these movies. And every, every penny we bring in is profit for us. Versus spending a quarter of a million to a million dollars on something and maybe it makes a profit. Right. So they're like, why would we make more movies at this point? I mean, which fair. You know, yeah. And a lot of studios were doing the same thing. Yeah. You even see in well into the 80s, you know, Disney re-releasing their movies theatrically every, mm-hmm. you know, seven years or whatever. You would see um, one of their big name classics coming up. Uh, So it makes a lot of financial sense before the video era. Disney used to have the vault. Yeah. Like Disney used to be like, this is the last time. And now they have made it so special too. It made it all so special. It was um, masters at marketing. Yeah. And, and I I remember what a big, huge deal it was in the nineties when star Wars was released. I know it's mm-hmm. not Disney then, but um, on yeah. in, in for its 20th anniversary. And it was like, this was 
packed out. It made more money the second yes. time than it did the first time. And it was just right. this massive thing because everyone had been watching it on the small screen for so long, experienced it on the big screen like it's supposed to be. I don't think yep. that sells the same as it once did. No, I mean, does for someone like me, you know, who will go out and see the re-release of Amelie on a weekend like I did this last week, but um, you know. it's, it's overexposed. Yeah, it's it's, it's it, so it, easy it's a, to, um, right. yeah, it's just a touch of a button now. It's mm-hmm. it's not only that it's it's these companies, and you it's hard to blame Disney when you or any company when you spend four billion on something, mm-hmm. you're like we have to get everything we can from it, but Man. it loses its it's not special anymore. It's just being mined for content, yeah, and it's no longer there's nothing special about Star Wars anymore. It's just another property yeah. that is just being mined for as much content as humanly possible. Yep. And it doesn't feel special. It's not that it's bad or poor. And it's not that, oh, it, you know, I mean, let's face it. Like we blasted Lucas in 99 and 2002 and 2005. Uh, he doesn't know what he's doing and he's the worst and he's ruined my childhood. And now everyone and loves got, those movies. Like, now everyone mm-hmm. loves them. And they hate the you sequels, know? you know. So, I mean, it's the mm-hmm. circle Correct. of life. We'll um, never be happy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No. <laughs> To be nervous, to, to be disappointed yeah. is really what it comes down to. <laughs> Getting back to this. So yeah. fair to say, 1946, it's a hugely profitable year for Hollywood. It's, it's at that point, one of the most profitable years in Hollywood history. And it's what it's a wonderful life comes out, even though that is kind of a flop mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Like it's one and what won the Oscar that year? It was pretty like sure it was the best year. years of our lives, the best years of our lives. which yeah. I still need to watch, which is a great, great film. Which you've told me I need to watch. Yeah. And I still need to sit down and watch, which is a hit, but like 46 is considered like one of the gold standard years in Hollywood history. Like, soldiers are returning from overseas. Like they're coming back from Japan. Now Uh, the mood of the country is pretty jubilant. Like it's one of celebration. People want to get out and enjoy themselves again after five years of austerity, after five years of like war bonds and conservation and, you know, uh, glass drives and war drives and paper drives. It's like, fuck it. Let's go out and celebrate. So 46 is huge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. People want to go out and, and enjoy themselves. After that, though, like after that high point, 47 is every bit as bad as 46 is good. And 48 is even worse. So Universal, even in the at the high point, they're one of the less profitable studios. Like they only rake in about four and a half million in profits in 46. So they're kind of at the bottom of the barrel as it is. And they start to drop a lot of their contract players, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. being one of them in 46. So after House of Dracula, he's let go of his contract and he is now on salary. Like they'll hire him as needed. They do keep Abbott and Costello. Like they're one of the few teams or one of the two of the few people left on contract under, under Universal at this time. Yeah. Well, I mean, Boris Karloff had kind of said when his contract expired he said he decided not to renew with them and that was actually a hit to them um and Mm -hmm. he went and made money for other people like for mgm and rko and val luton all those things yeah Mm -hmm. they couldn't find anything for karloff that he really wanted to do no not really they were just giving him the same roles over like karloff the uncanny and by that time 
you know, then he was doing Broadway. Yep. He was doing Arsenic and Old Lace. And in a few years, he would transition to television. Like Karloff would have a pretty varied career. Like he was never not working. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Bud Abbott and Luke Costello. Let's talk about like their career. We've talked a bunch about them, so I'll kind of just run through this a little bit sure. for the for the um, for the uh, interest of time. But they were a long running comedy duo. They had gotten there beginning as a burlesque team uh, or playing burlesque shows on Forty Second Street in New York City in 1935. So a very different. 42nd street in the 1930s like yes. they're not playing grindhouse theater. right like no you know it's not um you're not getting a pairing of like bud abbott and luke costello followed by uh a showing of like the candy snatchers or last house on the left <laughs> right. which would be amazing um but you know by 1940 they have their own radio show the abbott and costello show and they're performing their skits live on broadway and the radio show is such a massive hit that you have guest stars like Cary Grant and Frank Sinatra and Lucille Ball coming on to do like guest skits. Uh, the Andrews Sisters, which are like a singing mm-hmm. team, uh, they're on the like sisters. pretty much all the time. Like they're kind of like partnered in a lot of ways with like Lou uh, Costello and uh, Bud Abbott as well. Um Their popularity is such that the radio show expands into a second show, which is a children's radio program that runs like Saturday mornings from like 1947 to 49. And I don't know, like if I don't think they're doing like blue routines on their typical show where you couldn't do, you know, why you would have to separate it into a children's show. Cause like their comedy is pretty, you know, they're not it's running family like friendly. Risque. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's it pretty is. family yeah. friendly. It is. Um, like that show that I'm watching, like the riskiest thing that happened is like a woman will run over and hit Lou in the face and say, how dare you remind me of a man I hate? Like that's it. <laughs> or Lou, he does like kiss a man on the lips because he thinks that like it's a woman mm-hmm. for a moment because he makes him an ice cream sundae and he was promised a kiss. Uh, that's about as like risque as it gets. Uh, so maybe for 1951, that's a bit bit much but who knows uh so there's popular that their radio show is so popular that universal signs them on to start making movies and in 1941 their second film buck uh, buck privates is such a hit that it earns about four million at the box office sounds like a porno porno title right it really does (laughs) um I'm Buck Privates. I'm here for my scene. Yes. Maybe that's why they needed to do the children's radio. <laughs> so they're at one of Lionel Atwill's parties. Yeah, oh, there you go. oh God. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you say that because and I didn't put this in my notes, but Errol Flynn oh. says he he takes credit for breaking the comedy duo up. Because he invited them both to their house in the 50s for like a dinner party and to show like home movies. And Flynn says that he ended up showing them pornographic films. And both Abbott and Costello, like they were family men, like they were both guys that were pretty devoted. Like they weren't going around like screwing around with other women. They weren't going out philandering with others. Like they were pretty straight laced guys. And... 
they each blame the other for like getting invited to this party. And Flynn said, you know, that that was it. Like after this like dinner party, they never performed together. They were already like they were done with Universal. They really weren't making movies together. They really weren't performing together. And like they came to an absolute dissolution of their comedy group at that point but flynn said like after he showed them like some homemade porn like that was it they both blamed one another so the spirit of lionel atwell okay yes lives on so goddamn that swashbuckler is that what we're calling it these days okay you just see him like swinging in naked from the pirate ship you know just (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the knife down the sail thing yeah there you go oh, oh man except it's not the knife except it's not the knife oh. anyway it's it's cock in case you were wondering <laughs> i was curious what i meant by that thank you for clarifying yeah. mike just just so we're all clear yeah. it was cock all right <laughs> anyway so buck Pro- privates is not a pornographic film it is an army movie they're paying are they're in the army uh, and that is such a massive, which I guess could also be pornographic. I mean, you know, it gets lonely. <laughs> anyway, they followed that up with other armed forces themed comedies like in the Navy. And there's never been any sort of queer insinuation of anything in the Navy, Navy right. before. Yeah. So never. So totally straight laced. Uh, keep them flying along with comedies like Hold That Ghost and the Western themed Ride em Cowboy. So by the end of 41, the comedy duo, like they're the third largest box office attraction of the country. Others had them at number two, but needless to say, like their first year, they're already like massive successes mm-hmm. for Universal. Right. Kind of like Karloff in like a decade earlier in 31, Karloff and Lugosi together are like the number two attraction after Frankenstein and Dracula. Like that's mm-hmm. like the number two and three largest movie for, uh, between Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, what hits they were for Universal. Now that's happened in Costello. So, you know, horror's gone out of fashion. Now it's comedy. So their run of success continues for the early 40s with Universal. Universal loans them to MGM to make Rio Rita. Then they head back home to make Pardon My Sarong in Who Done It in 1942. They do a comedy tour for the uh, Armed Forces, uh, and that is credited with selling over $85 million in war bonds. So they're doing like their patriotic duty in March of four. That's how popular they are. Just like going oh, yeah. out there performing for the troops and going out and performing for the yeah. public and selling war bonds. Like that's a lot of money. 85 right? million 19... in 1942. Wow. Yeah. I was going to say yeah. that's yeah. insane. Yeah. yeah. And you kind of wonder if they're like, what's their cut? Like if they're getting any sort of little, little taste of that. Cause you I was going to the... say that's like half the military budget that year. Yeah. Like, God, you know? The IRS at some point, at one point at the end of their career is going to come for these guys too. Yes, so they do. Kind of wonder like 85, if they're pocketing a little bit of that money too, like 85 million for you, eh, maybe 8.5 million for Lou and Bud, you know, who <laughs> knows? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, and this is when the tragedy starts to hit. And this is where the, they also start to d- kind of like friction and the team start to show up. Uh, in March of 43, Costello develops rheumatic fever which leaves him bedridden for six months and really unable to perform for about a year. On the day that he's 
going to return to his radio program, his one-year-old son, Lou Costello Jr., accidentally drowns in the family swimming pool, like the day he's about mm. to go on. Costello does the radio program tonight. It's like in, in Bud Abbott, he doesn't tell anybody before the show side, like Bud Abbott knows and a couple people that are very close to him know. Uh, but at the end of the show, Bud Abbott lets it known like what happened to Lou's son. Mm. And Bud says like, this is the epitome of like the show must go on. You know, my partner has suffered this horrible tragedy. And one of the Andrew sisters says, like, after this tragedy, like Lou Costello, understandably, was never the same. Like oh, that yeah. kind of like happy-go-lucky, things could roll off his shoulders. You know, the life of the party guy kind of went away and he was much quicker to grow angry. Um, he was much prone to like lash out at people. He would hold grudges longer. Um, I've counseled persons that have lost their children and that's like such a hard thing to get over and you've i've heard people say like the worst thing that could ever happen to them is like outliving their children mm -hmm. yeah um so i can only imagine like the tragedy that he went through there are other cracks in their relationship as well at this time like at one point they're offered the opportunity to perform like a pretty high paying gig at a minstrel show and Bud Abbott wants to do it because it's, you know, really high paying. He's like, why not? And Costello is like very not into it. And Abbott convinces him to do it by giving him like a higher cut of the proceeds. Like rather than doing like 50-50, what if we do 60-40? And Costello says, mm. okay, let's do that. And that becomes their split going forward. Mm. Mm. And that becomes a point of contention between them because now Costello's making more later on down the road. Like when they start doing their television show, Costello owns the show. So he's making the lion's share of the money from it. But Abbott is just a salaried performer on it. So he's not Yikes. getting the syndication money. He's not getting any of the revenue from like, you know, like Downey selling um, laundry detergent, all the revenue coming in from commercials. Like he doesn't see a penny of that. Like that's all going into Lou Costello's pocket. Um, the relationship strained even more in 1945. Costello had fired a maid that had worked for him and not sure why he did, but he had fired a domestic worker and Bud Abbott hires her after that. And Costello was so pissed off about this that he wouldn't talk to him. The only time he would communicate with him is when they were working together, like on stage or in front of the camera. Other than that, like would not talk to him at all. Uh, so they're just like the relationship at this point, it's the mid forties. Like it is very strained. The, uh, I think in order to make things right, Bud Abbott suggests that like the charitable foundation that Costello founded, he's like, why don't you name it after your son who passed away? Um, we'll call it the Lou Costello Jr. Foundation. And it was out in Los Angeles. And I think that kind of touched Costello and it kind of mended fences for a bit, but it didn't completely repair them. And I think the foundation still exists to this day out in Los Angeles. It's a foundation for kids. Um, but for a long while, they would only speak when performing together. The output on their films is slowing down. In 47, they make Little Giant and The Time of Their Lives, and that's it. And they appear as like separate characters and rather as a team. So they're not appearing together. 
they're appearing as just two different characters in a movie. And both of those films are disappointments at the box office. So meets Frankenstein. It's a shot in the arm for them. Like it's really their popularity is in decline. And you think like they'd be pretty excited for this opportunity, right? Like they're going to team with the monsters. The monsters are always really popular. Like it's going to be a pretty big boost for them. It's going to get them on top. Like this is going to be great for them and they're going to be excited, right? Costello, not so much. Costello calls the script terrible and says, you don't think I do that crap, do you? My five-year-old daughter can write something better than that. So he's not happy. And it takes about $50,000 for him up getting that up front to change his tune. Like that and getting his buddy Charles Barton to direct it. I was to say, like, Barton get played a big role there too. Yeah. 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 And Bard, we'll talk about him in a minute and his experience directing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, He didn't have the best time, despite being buddies with these guys. So let's switch gears a little bit, because we get our our three monsters come back, including our uh, coming back for the first time in a long while. Bela Lugosi returning to the role that he made famous, Mm -hmm. playing Dracula for the first time on screen since 1931. But what was Lugosi up to in the intervening years? What was he doing? Lots and lots of Poverty Row. Um, He makes, um, I mean, he does do some studio work. I think he makes three or four films with RKO. Uh, But since Meets Frankenstein, he does uh, an unofficial Dracula sequel for Columbia called Return of the Vampire. Uh, that one actually comes out the same year as meets Frankenstein or uh, as um, Frankenstein meets Wolfman. Wolfman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say. Sorry. Um, and uh, he gets some uh, the only but the only starring roles he can get are with monogram pictures, um, stuff like Voodoo Man and Return of the Ape Man. And then he's also a player in the East Side Kids movie Ghosts on the Loose. Um, he does do uh, one other Karloff picture with RKO. Uh, called The Body Snatcher, based on the Robert Louis Stevenson novel. And it's one um, of the best movies of the 40s. It, it's one of the best horror films of the 40s. It's brilliant. Right on. Yeah, I will have to check that one out then. Yeah, It's pretty brilliant. I checked it out on Brian's recommendation, and he's not lying. Right on. All right. I'm putting that on my short list. Thank you. Uh, and then he does two other films at RKO with Alan Carney and Wally Brown, who were like RKO's Abbott and Costello knockoffs. So he kind of already has like some experience with that kind of duo, um, including the horror themed zombies on Broadway, which I have Uh, on my shelf. Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) I have not yet seen it, but I do have it on my shelf. Yes. Apparently Bela is a uh, zombie making mad scientist in that one. I have not seen that one either. Yeah. Wait, Brian, do you think zombies on Broadway might be the move? Are you saving that one for the deathbed? Or is that it, the it one could where you're be, like, you know, I mean, now it's time. Now it's <laughs> there's time. so many, so many possibilities. <laughs> and, you know, if Blu-ray players still work in that time, then, you know, I'll make sure that the physical media is available to, to the family for that. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then, I mean, beyond that, his addictions are starting to get the better of him. Methadone becomes available in the U.S. in 1947, uh, and that becomes yet another way for Lugosi to um, stabilize the constant back pain that he's in. Um, and uh, yeah, he's he, within 
This is 48 by 51. He's starting to work with Ed Wood. And like, that's like within the last few years of his life is he, he's working with Edward Wood Jr. So like he's, he's coming in on the end here uh, mm-hmm. when this film, this is kind of his last, I think it's his last major studio film, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, and maybe his kind of last hurrah kind of this feels like a swan song for a career in a very, a very pointed way. No. And he thought this would lead to more studio work, especially because the movie's a hit. And he was kind of surprised that it didn't. Um, Did Brian freeze there? I don't think. Nope, he did. Oh, my God. You were so still. I I do that sometimes. I I freak out. Oh, my God. Do that just to freak you out every now and then. Yeah. You totally freaked me out right there. I'm uh, leaving that in. Wow, that that's was what, that's incredible. What, that's what inner peace looks like, Mike. He can just just stay there, just so plastic. That so was still. that was just thinking, processing, and I just froze. Mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> so, Brian, even though Lugosi isn't getting a lot of film work during this time, it's not like he's not working. It sounds like he's doing a lot of stage work. Yeah, and he's doing the role that he's made most famous during this time, mostly, correct? As That's my understanding. Now, um, one of the sort of running jokes in the line, in uh, sorry, one of the running jokes in the film, Ed Wood, is that all of the characters have seen him on stage as Dracula, and he's mm-hmm. so much scarier on stage than he is in the movie. And it's that's a recurring line in the film. And um, so, yeah, you've mentioned too, that um, he's just hitting regional theaters and doing runs of Dracula in various places all over the country. Um, Not necessarily for the biggest theaters either, you know, I mean, step above community theater, maybe. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, this is just really, um, uh, doing whatever he can to get by, but he is working and he's working quite a, a lot. He never stops. He's just not in film and he's doing a lot of public appearances too. Yeah. Right? Like going places and just showing up like as Dracula or as Bela Lugosi. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he takes over for Karloff in Arsenic and Old Lace at some point too. Right. That is my understanding as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can confirm that, Mike, but I, I've heard that as well. He I think that's somewhere does, time in between. He does arsenic and old lace, but not on Broadway. Right. So he's doing arsenic and old lace, but he's doing like week long engagements of the show. So like where where Karloff is doing it on Broadway and then later he would do it on television and he would make that role famous. Like there's the line, they told me I look like Boris Karloff. Um, I, what, did they change Lug- it for the for Lugosi's performance? They changed it for Lugosi. Yeah, okay. They told me I look like Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Which I think it would be better if they made it. They told me I look like Karloff. I think it would be better. <laughs> you know Lugosi's not saying that shit. You know that he's not. <laughs> there's um, no way in so hell. Lugosi, so and, and Lugosi's trying to branch out. Like yeah. He's trying to do comedies. In, on stage and they're just not working for him like mm-hmm. they they're getting mixed reviews uh and they're playing like when he's trying to branch out to anything besides dracula or arsenic and old lace sure they're playing to like half filled houses and um you know the thing is i gotta say and, you know karloff would um say that you know his 
one of Bella's big problems what he's, is that he never really did master the English language. So he was mm-hmm. giving these performances that he didn't necessarily entirely understand. Um, and right. th- that would have been a real challenge, especially if it comes to comedy. I can't imagine trying to mm-hmm. do comedy without having a full grasp of the language you're trying to perform it in no matter what language that is. And I know that Bella always sort of resented Karloff saying things like that, but mm-hmm. I can't say it wasn't true though. You know? Yeah. So he's working consistently. And I think this idea and Brian, you turn me on to this book, the no traveler returns book, right. the idea that, Lugosi was like not working and was like destitute during this time is kind of been blown up. Yeah. I think the problem with Lugosi is he spent money faster than he could make it. Like he would invest in a lot of properties. He sent his son to like a private military academy. So his kid is like seven and he's at like a private military academy, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure is not inexpensive. But like during this time, like in the late forties, uh, like for, late 47, early 48, he's playing Dracula over in Great Britain and he's making like 2000 a week. Now that's not bad money. I mean, you space that out over the course of a year and that's six figures, but he has all these properties to pay for all this mm-hmm. other travel. And he kind of lives an extravagant lifestyle that's yeah. way outside of his means as well. He, he was, so all, but it should be, he is also generous to a fault though. Yes. He's one of these guys. He would literally give a friend the clothes off his back if they needed it. Yep. And he was, mm. yeah. he was extraordinarily generous as well. So um, there is that, but the side effect of that is the money just slipped through his fingers as yeah. fast as he, he was bringing it in. Yeah. And he would do things like he would find like the Hungarian restaurant in the area when he was like doing these shows and he would bring the crew out or the cast out to it. And like the, he was obviously a huge star in Hungary Mm -hmm. and like his fame was such that he would like schmooze the owner of the restaurant. And then when the bill would come, he would be like, okay, guys, it's on me. And the rest of the cast would look at him and be like, he does not have the money to pay for this how is this going to be on him and he would go to the owner and be like oh you've been so generous you've been an amazing host i will spread tales far and wide of what an amazing place this is to eat and how you took care of the great bella lugosi and like what it's you know the the word of mouth will be better than any bill I could ever pay. Thank you so much for your generosity. Right. We're out the door and, oh and before they would even oh know what would happen. The, the owner would be like, what the fuck just happened? Fuck you. Like, pay what? me. <laughs> yeah, yes. you know, was, and the Render owner would be Brian. like, I just, got, <laughs> I just got bamboozled, but it sounds like what landed landed Lugosi. This role was his manager, Don Marlowe and Marlowe sounds like one of these characters who he sounds kind of like a used car salesman yeah, more was. than a Hollywood manager. Uh-huh. Uh, he would write a biography like a, and his autobiography sounds more like a pro wrestler's autobiography <laughs> than a real auto. It's, it's yeah. a work. Like a lot of the stories aren't real. Uh, didn't really happen. But apparently in this case, like, 
and Lugosi would go through managers very quickly and he would say, well, this is my manager for movies. This is my manager for stage work. This is my manager for radio. And he would constantly shift back and forth between them uh, based on who could get him work when, because he needed money and he Mm -hmm. needed to work and he would shift allegiances. But Marlowe went to Universal and said, this is the guy you got to hire for Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. He's the original. He's the OG. And he is credited for brokering this deal. And Marlowe was someone that even though he was kind of a worker and kind of a teller of tall tales, he was somebody that was like very well liked in Hollywood. Like people did like him and did like working with him. Uh, and he was also like if 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 Lugosi had to like leave his employ and go work with another manager for a bit like marlo wouldn't hold it against him he wasn't like fuck you where's my 10 percent?" he was like do what you gotta do and i'll be back here in six months when you come back to me anyway it's like not the end of the world so uh i kind of want to pick up his biography because it sounds like it would be a very fun if entirely fake reason. sure <laughs> <laughs> those are the best though I mean, yeah but it yeah. sounds like he was always like proposing work for Lugosi mm-hmm. that would just slip through his fingers and never quite, never quite be like radio programs and television specials and Hollywood roles that would never quite land for him. But this was like the one thing that he was able to secure, like the getting him to play Dracula once again. Uh, and Universal had all the monsters, quote unquote, signed their contract on January 16th, 1948. It's a nice bit of publicity. Both uh, Cheney is the Wolfman, Glenn Strange is Frankenstein's monster. No hunchback this time around, although we do get a <laughs> Nazi war criminal. Yeah. So that's nice. So I, I don't know the answer to this question, but was David Carradine, not David Carradine, John Carradine considered for Dracula in this version? Do you know? I don't think so. I I don't have the name off. It's listed in the book. I don't have the name off the top of my head. Let me see if Um, I can find it. I I was just curious. That's something I haven't looked into. um, There is just after playing it twice before. Okay. But I know it's not Carradine. Um, Ian Keith. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. That was the name that was considered. All right. Um, which, if I remember correct, might have been the name that was considered way back in 1931. As well. Yes. Yeah. He was uh, another one that was up for that role. I remember yeah. that um, in my okay. research for that. Uh, yeah. And they thought about going back to him and Marlowe kind of like stepped in and got really brokered a deal. Yeah. Okay. So, again, what made the deal a little sweeter for Costello and Abbott and Costello coming on board, they got their director buddy, Charles Barton, to direct... Uh, He was friends with the comedy duo, uh, but he did not enjoy working with them on this picture, saying that they were like the real monsters on set were Abbott and Costello. And it doesn't sound like anything major. It doesn't sound like they were super monstrous. I mean, there was the thing about like saying that he hated the script and that his five-year-old could write a better one. Like, that's not cool. You know, that's not something you want to hear. Um but this is what a quote I found from Stories Behind the Screen. Uh, and this is about Charles Barton and uh, the making of Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. I've got a link here in my notes. It says, filming was highlighted by card games, 
exploding cigars, and daily practical jokes on set, which was just Abbott and Costello's way of battling boredom and having fun with the cast and crew. Apparently not everyone enjoyed the horseplay, however, as Bella Lugosi, who took the role very seriously, told the New York Times, there is no burlesque for me. All I have to do is frighten the boys, a perfectly appropriate activity. My trademark will be unblemished. As director Barton would later say, there were times when I thought Bella was going to have a stroke on set. You have to understand that working with two zanies, I'm going to bring zanies back into the lexicon, <laughs> like Abbott and Costello was not the normal Hollywood set. They never went by the script, and at least once a day there would be a pie fight. Abbott and Costello respected the three monsters, Lund, and made sure no pies were flung at the heavily made-up actors. Bella, of course, would have nothing to do with any of this. He would just glare at those involved with his famous deadly stare, and the only emotion he would show physically was one of utter disgust. Uh, apparently, though, Glenn Strange loved it. Like yeah. Glenn Strange would like bust out laughing. This uh, this sounds incredibly familiar because I just spent um, a bunch of time researching the Black Cat, which is the first pairing mm-hmm. between Karloff and Lugosi. And all the interviews are like, Karloff was having a great time. Everyone yeah. loved hanging out with him. He was relaxed. He would he would finish a take and then he'd turn to the camera and go, boo, you know, after the cut would have happened mm-hmm. anyway. Um, things like right. that. He was just, and people loved hanging out with him. But then Bella would just be like hyper-focused and ultra-serious and just kind of distance himself from everybody he just would not want to do anything that would break the mystique the mystique yeah and again you wonder how much of that is like a language barrier Uh how much of that because comedy is so much of language and timing and you wonder if he felt like he was the butt of jokes like there was one i think there was like one thing like watching the making of documentary they talk like Lugosi would play along for some of it. But then at one point there was like Lugosi was doing a thing where he was coming down the stairs as Dracula and one of like the Abbott and Costello's buddies, Bobby Barber. Yeah. would creep behind him and kind of like make a parody of it. And Lugosi, he felt hurt by that. He felt like he was like, they were taking like, you know, kind of like taking advantage of him a Mm. bit and like make mimicking him. And he felt hurt, you know, he kind of felt like the butt of the joke. And you kind of wonder how much of that. And, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. is another guy that notoriously like didn't have a lot of humor on set and would like smash bottles over director's heads. (laughs) Right. I was going to say he was was coming off one most of the time anyway, but like, yeah, yeah, like he looks like he's in a lot better shape in this movie though. You think so? I I do. <laughs> to me, it's compared to like the previous to House of Dracula. To me, he. God, he I thought he, he looked so old. Oh man, I don't know. I guess that first shot, he looked sixty years shot. old. Oh okay. my god, yeah. Okay. Bobby Barber is slimmer. like he did look a little trimmer. Yeah, or something. Yeah, this. I don't know. You know what I think it is? He looks awesome in the suit. Like the he style does look nice in, in the movie. suit. Yeah. They're wearing some killer suits. Yeah. I'm like, bring back this style because yeah. it looks awesome. But his face looks a bit haggard. Okay. Fair enough. I guess I, I just uh, interpreted it differently, I guess. Yeah. Wishful thinking, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. I, 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 I'm pulling I'm pull <laughs> Lon, you know? So 1948 anyway, what, what, were you, what were you saying about? 
1948 Lon Chaney Jr. is not a look anyone should aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> Just, no. Well, I guess I'm comparing it to like, you know, Spider Baby or something. House- yeah. True. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, but Glenn Strange, like, sounded like he was having a blast. Like, they would take him off set and he was, like, grabbing women in mermaid costumes and walking around Universal. He was, like, encountering children in the Frankenstein getup. Like, he was just having fun with Abbott and Costello. Um, There's, like, some behind-the-scenes footage of the shot of Costello like using him as a chair and he's like tickling Glenn strange. Like it's like an extended take and you can see strange, like breaking character. Like he's Jimmy Fallon and Saturday night live. Like he's totally breaking character. Like and Costello would go out of his way to try to make him break. Uh, And he's just having fun. Like he was there because Glenn strange is really like, he's a he's a stunt person. Mm -hmm. He's not, really he's the guy in the suit by this point yeah Yeah. he's the guy he's the guy in the suit yeah you know he's just having fun he's the guy making like way less than anybody else uh in these in these in these movies um so he's there really having fun so Um, so steven what what was it that bobby barber was doing that was he's the guy that plays the waiter in the scene where lon cheney comes in and is like uh have you seen chicken wilbur he's like seen him i've never even heard of him um but he's the he was kind of one of their guys like he would just kind of hang out with them and he would be the guy doing a lot of the practical jokes and stuff on set like someone was supposed to come through a door and he'd run through it instead and then run off so i think he was the one kind of instigating a lot of stuff and it it comes from kind of the vaudeville stage preparation where everything is quick and loose and film there's a lot of stopping and starting and resetting and so he was kind of there to keep everybody loose loose and it didn't really work on someone like Lugosi who is loose is not really in his vocabulary it's definitely not uh, where whether it be because he doesn't understand what the word means or because he's you know just so uptight he just doesn't know so like it's mm-hmm. yeah that's kind of his his thing so yeah barber i think um he was basically the cut up always on set he only has the one small scene but mm-hmm. he's just always there because bud and lou want him there okay um so yeah okay yeah. That, that i was just he's part of the entourage sounds good he's yeah. part of their mm-hmm. entourage mm-hmm. so barton's own career the director is pretty eclectic like he would work in the crime genre he would do some film noir then he would transition to comedies and he would work with abbott and costello on Buck Privates Come Home. If it was called Buck Privates Come Again, that would definitely be a porno. (laughs) This is my new favorite. Uh, I mean, this is my new favorite tidbit of information. I just forget who's on first. We got the whole Buck Private Cinematic Universe. It just just makes me think of, you know, George Costanza on Seinfeld, you know, his porn name, Buck Naked. It's like Buck Buck Naked would be so much better. Agreed. Uh, He does. He does. After um, meets Frankenstein, he does meets the killer Boris Karloff with them. and then he would do like he'd film the Shaggy Dog. I used to love the uh, Shaggy Dog. Yeah. I, we almost Is that the one where the Disney dog movies? punches the guy in the face? Is that the one where the dog punches the dude in the face? Oh gosh, I don't even remember. But uh, I, it's Fred McMurray. It's the um, it's the the Medfield Disney Medfield one, right? Is that what it's called? There's a clip that circulates online every now and again. It's like a big kind of like it's, Shaggy Dog, yeah. and it gets out of the chair and it just runs up and it like punches like Dick Van Patten in the face. 
Is that the one? I don't know. I, I, I can't remember. You know, it's basically a werewolf movie. It's basically Teen Wolf, except he turns into a dog. Right, a cheap dog, yeah, a big sheep dog. Yeah, yeah. and I, is it a series? Is it horror? There were two Can we of cover them. It? There were two no. of them. It was uh, the Shaggy Dog and the Shaggy Da, um, and then a made-for-TV remake with Tim Allen with and Tim Robert Downey Jr. Right. Yeah, the, I remember the wow. remake too. I didn't see the remake because it looked. Do you, how is Robert Downey Jr. not talking about the Shaggy Dog remake while he does this kind of press well, he does an Oscar tour? <laughs> <laughs> well, as I understand, that was the movie that sort of saved his career because it proved it made him insurable <laughs> so that yeah. he could, oh, okay. so that he could be in um, Iron Man, <laughs> which that's is that's incredible yeah, or something like so. That. So, Mike, the clip that you're thinking of is not from the Shaggy Dog. It's from the sequel, the Shaggy D.A. Is it? Okay, it so it's the same cinematic universe. Yes, it is. It is. And okay. I think that's the same cinematic universe as like the absent-minded professor yeah. wow. and the computer wore tennis shoes, uh-huh. all those early like the Kurt uh, Russell. Kurt Russell. Disney. Yeah. That live action okay. Disney stuff. I don't know. Some of mm-hmm. that I just takes me back. It's fun yeah. stuff. We used to yeah, watch man. that in elementary. It's like the Herbie the Love Bug sure. and mm-hmm. all that. Right. Oh yeah. We haven't even gotten to talking about, wow, this, okay. <laughs> nope. Oh, listeners. And at this rate, we never will. We never, never will. will. We're going to get there. Um, okay. Um, he would do television later on. Like he would transition to TV. He would do like 80 episodes of the Amos and Andy show, which yikes, yeah. uh, from 51 to 55. We'll Correct. move on. And then he would wrap up his career directing like 106 episodes of a television comedy called Family Affair yeah. from 67 to 71, which I have never heard I of. I know Family Affair watched. because that's what Zed's watching in Police Academy 2, you know, down in the lair. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Wow. He, so. Yeah. I know of it because um, the oldies station, I think uh, the one of the original kids like came and did an appearance at like a local shop at the oldies station was like promoting when I was a kid. So... That's why I know Amazing. about Family Affair. Amazing. So, so Barton doesn't have the best time filming this, but he'd end up okay. Um, yeah. One thing that did go smoothly on set was the makeup process. So without Jack Fuddy Duddy Pierce, the process <laughs> of making, that was his nickname. Yeah. I've uncovered that. Yeah. Uh, it's on his tombstone. Um <laughs> It's not. Uh, without Jack Pierce, the process of making up Frankenstein and the Wolfman went from like six to eight hours a day down to about an hour each. And Strange called it like one of the most pleasant experiences he had ever had on set. Uh, makeup artist Emile Levine worked on Chaney and Jack Kavan worked on Strange. And much of Strange's makeup was now just a rubber mask. Uh, and it, it was estimated like about a hundred hours of t- of time altogether was saved on the production just by using these new techniques. And it's why Pierce was shown the door. It was like, hey, we need to save time and money. Can you use these new processes? And Pierce said, no, you can't. You'll never want to replace me. And Universal said, mm, not so much. Bad. So question like, do you think the picture suffers for it? Not really. No. Um, honestly, I until I I didn't even know that because I was wasn't thinking about it at least because I was noticing differences in like the look of the Wolfman. He's got like these 
striation things on his face that I don't yeah. remember being there before. So it's probably like a whole face appliance that already had the hair attached to it. Yeah. And they just yeah. glue it on. Um, and it looks so, it doesn't look bad. I mean, I think the, uh, no. the, uh, um, materials are, uh, just better by that point. So yeah. it doesn't look, I think the Wolfman inferior. I think the Wolfman effects do look a little cheaper, but by and large, bit, like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of fine with it. Like I, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't bug me. Yeah. I mean, most of the, not... the lap dissolves. I mean, it's still, I mean, they're using the same techniques that they were using right. to make it happen. They just, yeah. what they don't have is like, uh, you've, you noticed, uh, you mentioned in the last couple movies, Mike, um, the Wolfman change, you can kind of see his face sort of quivering and stuff yes. like that in between the lap dissolves to sort of right. make him disappear a little bit. There's less of that here. Um, yeah. but, um, that's pretty minor considering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm okay with it. Yeah. do the one thing here where they, um, show his hand, they pan up to Costello, they pan back and it's like already yeah. changed. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Like yeah. at this point, like, I'm not it. watching. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it for like four other movies at yeah. this point. You know, it's not as egregious as say going from like an American werewolf in London to an American werewolf in Paris. Sure. Like, it's not <laughs> exactly. Big of a dumbest, yes. right? right. Yeah. Um, so at one point, Strange like broke his ankle uh, during the stunt when he was like throwing Lenora Albert through the window. Like it's, he tripped on a wire and he ends up breaking his ankle. So Cheney did double duty. Like he actually is the monster yeah. for the remainder of that scene. I think if you watch that scene, it's not like a close up shot, but you can tell that it's not Strange in the monster makeup. You can. He uh, turns around and I'm like, oh, it's my buddy. He's from like Ghost. lumbering yeah. at him, right? Yeah. yeah. So it does look a little bit different. You can see in the Blu-ray, it's pretty apparent. So uh, the film's released July, June 25th, 1948. Goes on to be the most successful Frankenstein since the first one. Uh, and the third biggest Universal International Picture of the Year. Universal paid Karloff to promote it, even though he's not in the movie. And Karloff agreed to do so under the condition that he doesn't have to watch the film, uh, which I found <laughs> Which he probably said uh, a joke, to be honest. He had, yeah, a, he, had a, he had a pretty wicked sense of humor. I he was think. cheeky. Yeah, he well, was. Because he would go on to appear with Abbott and Costello. He would, yeah. Kid, Twice. So I'm sure at some yeah. point. You know, and, and he would go on to appear with them. And this is a shot in the arm. Like, it does rejuvenate the careers of Abbott and Costello for a time in the early 50s. Like, they go on to do Meets the Killer, Boris Karloff. And allegedly, it was supposed to be Meets the Killers, Boris Karloff, and Bela Lugosi, oh. according to legend. But hmm. uh, at the end of the day, Lugosi was not able to ink a deal, and they just settled for Boris Karloff. Uh, and then they do... Um, meets Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the mummy, which I believe is the last one. It is. Um, and then the invisible man. I think the invisible man is less a horror movie. And like the invisible man is a boxer. He's a boxer. Yeah. It's one, a very weird which movie. Is, it yeah. sort of has some reminiscences of like Chaplin city lights and things like that. You know, okay. it's, oh, there's this okay, thing, yeah. like the boxing scene in that movie, I should say, but I mean, he's like, right. You put, but uh, I'm sorry, Luke Costello in the ring, getting hit by an invisible man. Hijinks. Yeah, I mean it's. I gotta open this box. Yeah, you know, it's, it's worth a look. I mean, the Invisible Man series is is like half horror and half 
comedy and then the mm-hmm. other it's like the invisible agent the invisible agent and... so it's an espionage movie i mean it's a very strange mm-hmm. series yeah i need the i need buck i need buck privates <laughs> and buck privates come home in my life for a hundred yeah, years yeah um after the after Let the buck privates movie, into your home huh yeah absolutely so the career of abner casella is rejuvenated they do the television deal which runs two seasons and again it mostly is like a live broadcast of their old radio bits and it's another wedge between the pair because costello owns the show and abbott is salaried costello's getting that higher split by the mid-50s their popularity is on the decline again they've been overexposed like they've done so many movies they're on tv they're on the radio it's like too much of a good thing basically uh and at the box office they're supplanted by rising stars like dean martin and jerry lewis like that is the new comedy duo that everybody is like out to see which i i don't think i've ever like watched a martin and lewis comedy like i'm just not super familiar with their comedy i've seen them separately yeah yeah i've seen there's just something about jerry lewis that's a hard no sure i've seen jerry lewis movies but i haven't but i haven't seen martin and lewis movies yeah i've seen the fish that save pittsburgh but that's Don Knotts and Don Knotts rules. Don Knotts does rule. Yeah. yeah. Don Knotts so, does rule. Yeah. Incredible yeah. Mr. Limpet for life. Yeah. Yeah. The ghost and so, Mr. Chicken Don private eyes. He did the horror comedy thing in there for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Apple so, dumpling gang. That's so universal drops them in 1955 when they can't come to terms in the new deal. And the IRS is there to pick up the pieces and say, Hey, how about those back taxes? And they're forced to sell off property, to sell off homes, and the rights to some of their earlier films. They formally dissolve their partnership in 1957 after maybe the Errol Flynn incident. Uh, Costello would go on to perform solo, like he would appear on the Steve Allen show, and he would just basically have other people perform in the Bud Abbott role, and he would be the funny guy. Uh, in 1959, he suffers a pretty major heart attack and he dies a few days later from it in the hospital. His last words may or may not have been like that strawberry milkshake I had is the best one I've ever tasted. Um, there's some discrepancy or some um, debate as to whether or not that was the last thing he ever said. Um, Abbott w- uh, would try to soldier on doing the old routines after costello's death he tried to make a go of it on his own with a new act but it really wasn't the same uh i mean it's harder to do the straight man and have other people be the exactly you have to have someone that matches that energy and that's just that's so hard like he tried in 1960 and after a year he's like this no one measures up to lou uh so he kind of retires in 1966 he gives voice to his own character in the cartoon Abbott and Costello with Stan Irwin playing the character of Lou Costello. And in 1974, he would pass away from cancer. Mm. And that is Abbott and Costello. And that is our background on this movie. So let's get to discuss. I feel like we have been discussing it. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, as we've been kind of going on here, but um, right from the get go, it feels like Universal is putting more effort into this one just from like the animated title sequence is gorgeous. Like that alone is, and I think I've seen 
like the monsters like walking through the woods on a t-shirt recently mm. and i'm oh, like cool. oh i need to order that yeah. for myself and yeah. someone pretty famous like does this animated it's, sequence right yeah that's walter lance uh also known as the creator of woody woodpecker uh which universal dist- was d- distributing had the rights to distribute about this time so yep. they were probably able to just call him up as a favor be like hey wally we got this movie you want to take a crack and he's like hell yeah let me at it and there you go so yeah that's walter lance and god it looks so good yeah it that opening so animation good. is amazing it's almost like you get a cartoon with your movie but uh-huh. like the old days feeling it's great yeah and I, I just feel like compared to what you get with like meets the wolf man and house of dracula and house of frank which is just like a static card with the name and the players which is just kind of blah mm-hmm. you get something that is like rich and detailed and funny and the score is gorgeous mm-hmm. and i haven't even mentioned the score of this movie because it is an incredible score and i had it written down and oh my goodness how do i not have who did the score of this movie we'll come back to that in a moment because it is a beautiful score and we'll have to come back to that i apologize but I think right away we know like we're in for something special here, right? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Frank Skinner. There we go. I was just about to, yeah. Watching this movie with my daughter last night, like during the open sequence and when his name popped up, her first words were like, Frank Skinner is going hard on the score. <laughs> she was like Dude, right away you're getting you're getting the um you're getting the motifs for dracula like when he would be staring at sandra and like be trying to like do his vampiric effects you're getting the little motifs here for um abbott and costello for wilbur and check um mm-hmm. You know, and you're getting these little moments here that I think, as opposed to getting a lot of repurposed music that we were getting in the previous films, were just yeah. like pastiches of previous. Like you're getting a whole new score, and it was awesome. It feels like, in a lot of ways, like because the Universal horror thing has kind of been dormant for a few years, and they're bringing it back up. They almost feels like they're putting in the extra effort because this is an Abbott and Costello movie. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to, you know, and also they're putting a lot of money in this hiring back the monsters, Abbott and Costello don't come cheap, especially Lou, who's got to have his 50 K up front. Like we, we put the bigger production value in it. This is even then, this is still like one of the cheapest movies they made that year. Yeah. Like it's the second cheapest movie they made all year, but it's still just, which tells you how little they were putting into some of their previous movies. Honestly, the mm-hmm. budget is like eight hundred grand mm-hmm. on this movie, which is almost double what the House of Dracula, and I think it's more than double what House of Dracula was, which I think was yeah. closer to like three hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, and I like the like four hundred k was what House of Frankenstein was. So mm-hmm. you're getting like double that put into this. And you're right. Like a lot of it is going to the pockets of Abbott and Costello, um, mm. but it doesn't feel cheap. No. Right. No. It looks gorgeous. It has like beautiful sets. Mm-hmm. Um, the house of Dracula in this, like the Dracula castle looks gorgeous. You get some beautiful mat work in this as well. Like it looks beautiful. The animation effects are absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. Like Dracula, like 
be turning into and and turning back from a bat multiple times like absolutely incredible yeah so i want to ask is this the first true horror comedy um uh, because there's been horror <laughs> movies that have comedic sure and I, you know there's been horror movies that have been funny yeah but not necessarily comedies yeah and i, I versus like a, co- a horror comedy sure um I, I guess you know i'm some of the things i mentioned here were like you know the old dark house the invisible man and bride of frankenstein those are horror movies that are funny uh like you said i think bride of frankenstein is the one to me that comes closest to being a horror comedy in the classic in, in that period. I mean, it's yeah. Um, because like the, the invisible man is very funny, but it's it is. horrifying. It's dark. It yeah. is really, really dark. Um, but then, uh, the ones that came to mind, and these are just recent discoveries for me, uh, in thir- 1938, 39, um, uh, Bob Hope and, uh, Paulette Goddard made the, Cat in the Canary in 39 and the Ghost Breakers in 38. And those are, especially the Cat in the Canary is like, it's a comedy and it's actually a remake of a horror movie from the twenties. And so it's, um, it doesn't ultimately spoiler alert, have a supernatural element, but it seems like it does. And also it, this is the movie that while I was watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, I went, if they didn't watch cat in the canary, I would be shocked because especially the settings of it are, they evoke a lot from cat in the canary, um, the Bayou kind of setting. And there's even the, the house on an Island out in the Bayou okay. is, is nice. all in that movie. And um, that's a, that's actually the cat in the canary is one of my favorite discoveries of last year. It is just so much fun and so funny, great sort of scary atmosphere. Um, you've, we've already mentioned Abbott and Costello did hold that ghost, which I don't know how much of a horror film that is or how much horror is in that movie. Um, so there are, I guess, examples of horror, horror comedy but i would call this like the citizen kane of horror comedies Mm -hmm. if you will because um like with citizen kane there were all of these things that are in that movie were there before they're just brought together in this one singular in that case masterpiece and Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe you want to call abbott and costello me frankenstein a masterpiece of its kind i mean it it it's just sort of a flashpoint. It's like Halloween is to the slasher genre. You know, I mean, it's the moment where it just all comes together in sort of one singular moment. Um, I, I think. Yeah. It, it really crystallizes and I think perfects the, the tropes and like the elements and the beats that you expect from a horror comedy going forward. Like it becomes, the Citizen Kane, it becomes the gold standard as a result of just kind of all these, like Brian said, these things that are in the ether just kind of coming together and forming their own thing. And I think a lot of Abbott and Costello and their brand of comedy has a lot to do with why that works as well. Yeah. Cause I think with like with using the James whale 
examples, like the, especially Bride of Frankenstein and The Invisible Man in particular. I think that those movies are funny to James Whale. Like, I think he's like, getting, you know what I mean? Like, I think he's amusing himself when he's making those movies. Sort of like The Shining and being a like, comedy. Stanley Kubrick thought that was, or to, or, or Texas Chainsaw. Toby Hooper yeah. with Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, right. Like, I think of that, like Toby Hooper, like he makes Texas Chainsaw too because he's like, nobody understood the comedy in the first movie. Right. And I remember like, it took me years of rewatches to understand where Hooper was coming yeah. from. And I'm like, you know what? This movie is really funny. Though, like there are parts of Chainsaw yeah, I agree. that are actually hysterical. Though I do think the- Bride of Frankenstein was always funny. I really do. Okay. Because especially with the character like Minnie, um, mm-hmm. you know, Uno, Minnie Uno O'Connor is, she's playing a comedy role. Um, okay. And I, 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 very broad. Yeah. I think to th- some extent, at least Ernest Thesiger is as well. Um, but I mean, like the business with the, uh, the little homunculi and the jars, mm-hmm. those are played for laughs in my, yeah. Yeah. do you think that would have been played for laughs in 1935? Yeah. Or do you think I do. that that would have been played? I, cause I could see audiences being horrified. They may not have understood. Like Some people might not have understood, but at the same time, I do think there is, Okay. Um, I think particularly the little horny king. Yeah, I think he's uh-huh. true. Yeah, I think Minnie in particular would be seen as funny in 1935. Yeah. I, I I don't because I mean I I don't know how you get by her, you know her yeah. her gesticulations and facial things without without yeah. laughing even in 35. You know, mm-hmm. um, correct. So I, I that's I me. see I see like Fessinger's role of Pretorius. The humor of that role evolving over time, oh, yeah. especially as we've gotten to understand queerness oh, sure. a lot more uh-huh. and that our understanding of that has evolved and changed over time, where that would have flown over a lot of audiences' head. And I there's I no doubt agree. about that. Like, yeah. yeah, like Minnie's role was always funny. And not that there wasn't any humor in like the original Frankenstein either, um, but it wasn't as like apparent. No. Um but I would. I don't know if necessarily Universal would have gone out and pitched Bride of Frankenstein. It's like, hey, this one's funnier than the original. I think they still would have pitched this right. like shocking and horrifying, which is the way they pitched uh, and it. Thrilling, but you know, I mean, but then at the same time, uh, with like Bob Hope movies, you know, you are pitching a comedy, and That's true. and and you're making this, you know, with Cat and the Canary and Ghostbreakers and specifically mm-hmm. and you know it was you know commercially viable because it made bob hope and paulette goddard into kind of a team of, for a little mm-hmm. bit there you know uh, for at least a few movies um they were a comedy team in these sort of yeah. horror uh, comedy things um so uh just kind of an interesting uh, those predate these by about 10 years but um they're different though i mean i i don't know this is this is <laughs> this is really marrying the horror movie and the comedy right. um, in I, an interesting way. So, and I think that's why it does it for me. Why I see it more as the prototype, and yeah. I see what you're saying, yeah. where others might like borrow from the genre, like oh, this has ghosts in it. This right. has like or has like some supernatural elements in it. Where yeah. this one is specifically taking like. 
the three most recognizable horror villains of the past two decades and marrying them to the most successful comedy duo duo in Hollywood right now. It's like the chocolate and the peanut butter coming together. And like, Stephen, I know in your notes, like you brought up like some specific like animation that this reminded you of like on your rewatch here. Yeah. I'm, I'm watching this thing and the entire movie and it's, I think it's mostly in Lou uh, in Lou Costello's performance, like the way he's kind of like freaking out and running and how he's always noticing things that Bud Abbott's not like, that was something that they would do in their comedy quite a bit. Um, But uh, I was reminded of Shaggy and Scooby uh, trying to get the rest of the gang to notice that there's a monster like right around the corner, like the monster appearing just to them and then like taking off. And then they're like, no, I swear it was a monster. Like, um, I was I was thinking so much of Scooby Doo as I was watching this. Just I kept being reminded of Scooby because I think Scooby Doo owes so much to uh, this movie in particular because I, again it it's kind of at least for me as a kid growing up was kind of a gateway into like horror comedy because mm-hmm. it was a funny show that yep. just happened to have ghosts and ghouls. And then at the end you'd pull the mask off and it was old man withers from up the street and you meddling kids and all that. He would have gotten away with it. Yeah, yeah. he would have stupid meddling kids. Yeah, I, I think Scooby doo ghostbusters and gremlins were probably my biggest gateway into the horror genre as a kid. You know, mm-hmm. because they have so much humor in them, too. So, yeah. So I have a really odd one for you in terms of like on rewatch last night and then watching some of their show who Abbott and Costello reminded me of. And this I, I don't know why, but it reminded me of watching Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta in Goodfellas. <laughs> like there is an element of. Watching Luke Costello, his anger, uh-huh. like a lot of his comedy comes from a place of anger, uh-huh. mm-hmm. of like feeling misunderstood, feeling like he's not being heard. And there's a rage to him. And you see it at times, especially when he's interacting with uh, Lon Chaney's Wolfman mm-hmm. later in the movie. And he's like, oh, come on, bud. Like he told you not wear the mask. And he punches the Wolfman in the snout. Mm-hmm. Um and there's like these physical bits and it started a lot on the show too. And you see like Bud reacting against him being the straight person. A lot of like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, his rage comes from a place of being, you don't respect me. A lot of it You're is saying feels like funny? every time he yeah. saying I'm funny yeah. or when Spider tells him to go fuck himself right. or he doesn't get his drink. Yeah. That's when he box. overreacts. Get your shine box. Yeah. That's when Pesci lashes out in rage. Yeah. And I saw like a lot of that lashing out, a lot of that rage in the comedy of Abbott and Costello. That like, is lashing fascinating. Out. And I and can't unsee it now. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It was, I just couldn't help but see if they're like pulling a little bit of like the pattern between like Ray Liotta's Henry Hill trying to placate yeah. uh, Tommy a bit in the Bud Abbott trying to like smooth things over with like Chick and Wilbur a little bit here. And with like, it just Abbott adds the fear yes. because Bud has no fear of Lou. Like I think Bud knows he's kind of a like innocuous little guy, yeah. but like 
Ray brings the fear, and I think that's what makes mm-hmm. Pesci's performance pop all the more. Mm-hmm. But no, you're you're absolutely there is there is that classic straight man, yeah. funny guy dynamic to the two of them that yeah. I would never watch Goodfellas the same way again. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So this, whose movie is this? At the end of the day, who owns this movie? Lou Costello. Yeah, it's it's Lou. Why? How does he own this movie? And I don't necessarily disagree because I do. I think he has the choicest bits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one thing I'll point to that happens later in the movie when he breaks the fourth wall that I really love. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what he gets, it's not just the bits. He's, he's just on screen more than anybody else in this movie. And I think he's the central figure. Like yeah. he is the impetus around every, around which everything is moving. Like it's his brain. They're trying to put into the creature's body. Like that's like, he is in a, in a, in a weird way. He's the main character and the MacGuffin kind of all rolled into one. And like in the same way that he took ownership of the TV show, he kind of takes ownership of this movie as a result. Like he's just got most of it. Yeah. You got two yeah, women and, fighting over him. He's the romantic lead somehow. Also, <laughs> somehow, some way, <laughs> somehow, we'll definitely talk about Lou Costello romantic lead here in a minute because <laughs> that might be the most unbelievable part of this movie. Um, I he does have the best. I mean, he gets some of the best lines. And again, the comic timing is great. Like some Mm. of the lines that really stick out, like, why don't you go look at yourself in the mirror? Why would I want to go hurt my own feelings like that? (laughs) I think. (laughs) I don't think that line will ever not make me laugh. It's so great. So good. So good. Um, The bit when he, like, if I had two cigarettes, I'd give them to you. If I had two pairs of shoes, I'd give you a pair. And if I had two girls... Why don't you take a cigarette, put on a pair of shoes, and go get take a hike down by the pier? <laughs> yeah, take and a walk just, by yourself. Like, yeah, oh my god, yeah. You know, and it's great. And I think the scene in McDougal's House of Horrors, oh yeah, is the highlight of the whole movie. And it's too bad it's so early in the movie because to me, it's like some of the best physical comedy mm-hmm. in the whole movie. Um, it sets up so much of it. It's a really great set like i don't know if it's supposed to be a warehouse or if that's exact where people would walk through yeah it, it almost looks like of, a wax museum kind of thing it yeah. does yeah. kind of like what you would get in night it looks pretty chintzy yeah let's mm-hmm. be honest like oh sure and then you have like the bones of dracula and frankenstein's monster and then all these chintzy wax dummies um but you get what i think could be so good in comedy is this comedy of misunderstanding where the audience and the character of Wilbur have a clear understanding of what's going on. And all that Wilbur has to do is open up the coffin and show like, here he is right here in front of me. It's Dracula. Uh, And instead you get lines like this is his, you know, it's all bunk. And it's like, yes, that's what he's saying. Like that's his bunk. (laughs) That's his his bunk. Yeah. Yeah. What do we, how does this moment work for you guys? How, what particular pops about this moment? You, you said earlier, Mike, how you wouldn't be able to point to any Abbott and Costello bits in this movie. The moving candle is, I love the moving candle thing. That is, I mean, that, that, but that's one of their bits from like way back that they Mm -hmm. would do. 
Um, and they integrated it into this movie. I think they did it in hold that ghost as well. Okay. Um, but like just the way that it like he'll just be sitting there reading the thing to himself and the candle just start to move back as Dracula opens the lid of the coffin and it watching it in it, 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 it becomes that classic thing. And it was it was kind of a classic thing for them where something would happen. Costello would react. He'd call an Abbott and it wouldn't happen. And that becomes kind of a staple of horror comedy where I see a thing. I tell you about the thing. I bring you to see the thing. Thing is gone. Like whatever scary thing there was, it's not there anymore. And this, and it, again, it, it comes like out I take of my car to the mechanic. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's such an intrinsic part of their shtick, mm-hmm. like their specific shtick that became synonymous through the entire genre because of how influential this film was. Um, like the first really commercially viable um, horror comedy, really. Um, so everyone's cribbing from this as a result and what they're cribbing from is Abbott and Costello and like their sense of timing and their, their back and forth, their dynamic, um, which is just, I mean, you're right. This it's, it's clockwork precision. You can see why their stars based really on this scene, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you wonder why like little, and again, it's because it's comedy. And if you don't do these things, you don't have a movie. But there's Frankenstein right there. All he has mm-hmm. to do is show him, like, look, there's the monster. It's right in front of me. Let me just move this hay for one second. Just have a peep. Just have a little peep. And I just, I love that he's so freaked out and flustered that he can't even do, he can't even bring himself to do the thing that makes Mm -hmm. the most sense. All he has to do is say, they went around the corner, like Dracula shows up and pulls Frankenstein's monster and they both move around the corner. All he has to say is they're over there, but he's all (laughs) like doing like the, the, the wordless shemp pointing and holding his hand over his face and like just doing all gesticulating wildly, but he's too terrified to speak until everyone goes away. And then of course he can speak perfectly. That's just, that's just where the comedy is. I guess when I saw this as a kid, I was like, why is he that scared? Hasn't he, you know, I guess I, I had seen those images of the monster and Dracula in that form so much. I didn't think they were that scary. And this grant this was through the eyes of a child, right? And so I was like, but here's, <laughs> no, here's what you have to remember, yeah. Brian. You know, there's no such a person as Dracula. I know there's no such a person as Dracula. But does Dracula know there's no such a person as Dracula? <laughs> well played there. Well played. Little bit. Yeah. Uh, One of my favorite bits in that was like, it's a great line. I came away with this as much as this is Costello's film. I came away with a lot more respect for Bud Abbott Mm. because I think he does an impeccable job of just like setting up the one liners Mm -hmm. and just setting up the comedy in this, like his timing is perfect and his ability to make himself the butt of the joke. Like there, not only does he make, Lou Costello funny, but he makes like the bit players around him funnier. Like yeah. there's the line um, when Sandra comes in, um, when he says like, what is, um, I don't get it. And she says, and you never will yeah. uh, where he makes himself the butt. It's good. Like it's like, and it's not like the most original line in the world, but it definitely works in that moment. Yeah. I mean, it might've been original in the forties. Yeah. 
his timing is, and it's pretty risque for the forties as well. It is it's a pretty risque joke for 1948. Yeah. Um, his timing as a straight person is being the straight man in the comedy routine is impeccable. It's really, really good. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's such a that's hard, hard skill to master. It is no. like people it, are like, Oh, well you're the straight man. You just, you, you don't do anything. You just stand there and let the other guy be funny. No, mm-hmm. you're the reason the other guy is funny. Yeah. And that takes a lot of work. And it's gotta be hard on the ego. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I like think you, that's why Abbott was willing to concede so much to Costello's demands is because he, even in life, he was the straight man. He was the guy who took the blows so that Costello could shine. Mm-hmm. And how much of the, can you, how much of that can you do before it just grates on you? Mm-hmm. Right. When someone else is getting all the limelight, when someone else is getting all the luster and you just kind of have to take a step back and watch that happen. And, you know, I think like we said at the end of the career, like when he tried to kind of go out on his own, he was like, mm, it's not the same. And when right. you work with someone your whole career trying to start over like that, especially when you're older and you're like, do I really want to start from scratch again? Yeah. It's got to be hard to do. Yeah. Cause he's so good here. Um, yeah. He's, he's great here. I do want to get, to some of the stuff with the monsters. Mm-hmm. Steven, you had brought up in the notes, the continuity. Yeah, there isn't any. Let's talk about <laughs> the lack of continuity. So I did, I, I had gotten, I'd fallen behind on my Frankenstein watches and I hadn't seen either of the house ofs. Uh, and so last night I sat down and I watched house of Frankenstein, house of Dracula mm-hmm. and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I just did a, a, a little three movie marathon for myself. And, uh, Damn it, if Dracula doesn't die in all three of those bitches, <laughs> like he's dying all over the place. And then he dies. I, I I saw, I read a synopsis online. He dies at the end of Son of Dracula as well. Like he's just constantly dying and coming back. Like there's, he's like, is, well, it's not even, it's in Son of Dracula, it's Alucard, right? I, uh-huh. I, I haven't even seen that one. I, uh, but is that supposed to be the character of count dracula or is it i think it is okay yeah i mean he's he's credited as count dracula slash count alucard okay um which is dracula spelled backwards i know um, yeah I, well i'm just uh, yeah you know, for, our audience. for our audience and he's um his ash his body is cremated at the beginning of of uh, dracula's daughter okay yeah so he's killed so, at the yeah, end of dracula he's not even in yeah, yeah. And, but that was yeah. the that was the code, right? Like if you were the villain, you had to die or be punished at yeah. the end of the movie. Right. So unless Dracula like spent the movie rescuing babies from fires, like which would have been a much different movie, like yeah. Dracula had to be punished. Yeah. Well, and then there's in like Carradine's Dracula is, is called Baron Latos in both yeah. of his appearances in the house ofs. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe Dracula is just like an honorific um, for like, <laughs> just like head vampire or something. Because I, I, <laughs> I, I made the note when you brought that up. Like, is it the same Dracula? Like, is Dracula the first name or the last name? Because Dracula right. itself, like in historical terms, there's Dracul, which is the dragon, which was right. the king of Watch. Uh, what I'm going to mispronounce it, Watchula. I forgot is, that this uh, is like your your like hidden trove of knowledge is Dracula. Right. I forgot this. It, it, it kind of is. I know. And then there was 
Dracula, the prince of the the son of the dragon, right. which was like Vlad Vlad Tepish, who <laughs> the was the rule, who, yeah. the impaler, who's a historical figure that you know killed hundreds of thousands of Turks and his own subjects. He had them literally impaled uh, while he would dine amongst the corpses as they would rot in the sun, right? Um, as one does, and as he had one brothers, does, as, one as one does, and he had brothers, and he had a brother. And I'm wondering if if Dracula is the last name, is John Carradine like Fred Dracula, right? <laughs> just like Fred Claus. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, He's the Vince Vaughn to Paul Giamatti. Like, yeah, there you just go. Just like the less competent and scary Dracula. To I mean, like certainly Ella less scary Dracula for sure. Oh, so and he's like can't tell time. He's mm-hmm. like, what if I do this scheme at like five minutes to sunrise? And like, mm-hmm. So that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is quite a possibility. But then like at the end of House of Frankenstein, the Wolfman gets shot with a silver bullet, but he's alive well and with a mustache in House of yeah. uh, Dracula. But then he's cured then he's of cured. lycanthropy at the end yeah. of that movie. But he shows up here and, oh, he gets hairy in the moonlight the again. Bones in Watch his, out. The bones in his skull rehardened. Uh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, that's the weirdest freaking cure for anything too i mean oh you know it's just you have too much pressure on your brain so hey not to be regressive but house of dracula feels like like the universal monsters meet dr 13 from dc comics just like the guy who disproves every magical thing he's like oh well then no that can be solved by science here you go here's your cure what's no i saw weird. you change it to the wolfman but it's really all in your head is where, yeah. <laughs> where it is House of Frankenstein ends up being like this very oddly influential film on the back end of the Frankenstein movie series because it like this movie borrows the brain swapping plot device again. Mm -hmm. Like it's all about we're going to swap brains and we're going to do like the musical brain swapping. Well, I guess that goes all the way back to Ghost of Frankenstein. I was going to say that's in Ghost too. Yeah, so that is too. So that is like going back like five movies or four movies now, but the idea of like the house of horrors, like that is, you know, Dr. Neiman and the great Lampini in the house of Frankenstein, except now instead of having like the traveling circus, you're now going to have McDougal with his static house of horrors. Cause it's magically in the modern day. Yeah. Right. In the swamps of that's the other thing. It's like, we've transported from 1800s, uh, Eastern Europe to the uh, modern day Florida for some reason. Well, these are all modern, like I mean, these are all immortal figures, right? So like mm-hmm. Dracula, the Frankenstein's monster is freaking indestructible in these movies. Um, you know, the wolf man is cursed so that he will always become a werewolf. Like these guys can't die. Like, oh, that's all, that's all Lon Chaney wants to do is just die. Mm-hmm. So it, be- it, you know, stands to reason that they right. could have lived this long. I said Lon Chaney Jr. invents emo in the Wolfman series. <laughs> it's really what he does. You have to credit him. Forget about to. the band Rights of Spring or Embrace out of DC. It's really Lon Chaney Jr. in the Wolfman series. Yeah. Doing the I, Werewolf of I London. The most Which unbelievable. In this one. That's true. I think the most unbelievable thing about this movie is Larry Talbot being like, Wilbur, this whole thing, this whole, this whole thing. I trust you, Wilbur. That's really it. Like he just randomly pick calls this 
package delivery place mm-hmm. and he play you know places all of his hopes all of all of his whole plot of catching dracula and destroying frankenstein and destroying dracula he's like all of it relies on this one long distance phone call he makes and like the first person who picks up this is going to be the person I'm going to put all of my trust in. Like, In fairness, he did not know he was making a call to Lou Costello. Okay, you can't fault him on that. <laughs> but, like, would you randomly just dial a number and put all of your trust in that person? I mean, what cho- what choice does he have? He and, and in fairness, halfway through the call, he also turns into a wolf man. <laughs> True. <laughs> so... <laughs> You're Which is another away from the phone. Such a funny bit. Yeah, like, I love that part. It's so funny. I guess the original cut- long distance call just to help me talk to your dog. So I guess in Britain for the original cut of this film, they weren't allowed to screen a lot of the Wolfman bits for some reason. So they had to cut that out. Well, Britain so had the, had its whole uh, essentially ban on horror films that was still going on essentially more or less there were a few i'm very curious how this plays without any of the because the wolfman is like the monster that's in for the most of the movie yeah yeah so it really should be called Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman, but I mean Frankenstein really should, is a, that's is a bigger really name. But, yeah, and essentially all of the back half of this, from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman all the way through this, are Wolfman sequels. They really are. You know, yeah, as opposed are. to Frankenstein. Frankenstein sequels. is an afterthought. Yeah, like once again, Frankenstein from Ghost of Frankenstein on, and you can even make the argument from Son of Frankenstein on. Mm-hmm. He is an afterthought. Yeah. In his own movies. Yeah. Like he is like a supporting character. As soon as you get Karloff out of the role, they just don't care. Yeah. 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 And even in that last Karloff movie, even in Son of Frankenstein. He's a nerd for, you know, half the movie. It's the, yeah, it's the Igor show. It's like Uh really Lugosi doing whatever he wants as Igor. Just flexing Uh, on everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not bad because Igor is a great character. So. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to ask, does this movie benefit from the inclusion of a Nazi war criminal as Luke Costello's <laughs> love interest? One of Luke Costello's love interests. Yeah. Okay? One of them. Yeah. One of, because he's got two. Um, I, <laughs> I didn't think that until you said that, and now it's all I can think about. Yeah. Um, I don't so, think it hit me until like rewatching it a couple weeks ago and prep for the show. Cause it, 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 you're right. Cause I was, after I read through the notes, I rewatched a couple of her scenes and it feels like at least when she's talking to Dracula, she's got a little bit of an accent on. So mm-hmm. like, she's got yeah. that Eastern European accent. I but think look- you're probably onto something here. Cause I mean, it makes sense. The Frankenstein comes from, from Germany. It's entirely possible. She would have found, some of his diaries somewhere and absconded with them to Argentina or Florida. Do you think, Oh boy. I mean, we're doing some digging into the backstory here. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing a lot of extrapolating based on context. Extrapolating here. Do you think that she had the book, the notes of Dr. Mm -hmm. Frankenstein, the light, the notes on life and death of Dr. Frankenstein, and she was in the camps 
experimenting with Frankenstein's notes. I don't want to think about that. That's a real possibility. I don't, I don't want to go there. Really I don't want to go there. Okay, so this is a double feature with Zone of Interest now. Is oh, that what God. <laughs> oh, God. Because that is... Because... And I'm, I'm going through, like, famous quotes from this movie right now to see if it is in here right now. And I don't necessarily see the quote from between the two of them. But... At one point, like Dracula straight up looks at Sandra and says, you have a price on your head from the police in Eastern Europe because you're a war criminal. Like, Mm. it'd be very interesting if I were to turn you in because of the, and he says, because of the experiments you have done. Like, Mm. he straight up accuses her of experimenting on others during the war. And I found that, like, super fascinating. Wow. Uh, That is the character's backstory in this lighthearted comedy in the 1940s where we have all of these wacky hijinks. Because it is pretty light. And then it ends with her getting thrown out a fucking window from the top of a castle by Frankenstein's monster. Like... And you're like, of course she is, because she has to be punished because she is a straight up villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's dark shit. <laughs> she fills the role in all of these movies of just the random scientist that you bring in to like become fascinated with Frankenstein's legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, except you get the feeling, based on the fact that she's been carting this book around, that she's been kind of looking for an excuse to perfect these methods. Um, Mm -hmm. In a way that I I think they have probably explored before, but it's that like thing that all these movies do where someone could even be completely altruistic, but for whatever reason, when presented with the notes of Dr. Frankenstein, they quickly become evil. What happens if someone who's already evil gets those notes? Like they just become uber evil, ultra evil, mega evil. Like what's the, what's the barometer there? And let's face it. Like it does not get much more evil than nazi war criminal like that is top of the pyramid yeah you know in terms of like by 1948 like that is pretty much top of the pyramid scheme of where you're going and i would say like the person who's playing the role of the mad scientist who is very interested in continuing the experiments of dr frankenstein is one bella lugosi is count dracula right I can't tell if Brian froze or if Brian. <laughs> I, I don't know how to process again. all that. This is wow. Did I blow your mind? I think with so. Like, I think you did. I, I I can't I can't process all that. Short circuit happened. I think. <laughs> Brian is buffering in real time. I am. There are at least two instances in the movie where like Lugosi's Dracula makes reference of the price on her head for the experimentations that she's done. And she definitely has that. The accent does become more pronounced as the movie mm-hmm. goes on. Um, she's definitely a Nazi worker. Like I will not, I, I go back and, and when just watch those two scenes and you're like, Holy shit. Like that blew my mind Yeah, when it kind of hit that that's what her role is. I could also see why you might not want to put too fine a point on that in a comedy in the late forties either, but mm-hmm. like you, where you could put it in there as kind of like a subtextual thing. Mm-hmm. And if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you right. don't. Right. 
Yeah. But that was fascinating to me. Um, But Lugosi is playing the role of like the mad doctor. He is. He is playing. Yeah. He finally gets to play Dr. Frankenstein. Right. And that, that, that was what I was thinking because, you know, he's, <laughs> that's what he thought he was going to play in Frankenstein way back in 1931. Yeah. And here we are where he's actually playing kind of that role. And so it's, because uh, he's not exactly Dracula as he is in the 31 film. He's uh, he's not in the cape the whole time. He's not, uh, you know, he's got a little bit different vibe going on. He's uh, using the little electrode to wake up the monster. And the monster talks. Mm-hmm. I totally forgot the monster talked, even if it just goes, master, you know. But Yes, master. It's just kind of like this weird thing that they brought back after a long time. Um, yeah. And so... Since Ghost, I think that was the last time he talked. He talks in Ghost, yeah. Um, but he's supposed to talk in Wolfman. We talked about that already. We did, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. What a it's it's interesting. Um, and he's back to the monosyllabic, yeah, one or two words. Or in Ghost, <laughs> right? Uh, he has Igor. He's kind of giving yeah. soliloquies. Is like Igor. Now, technically yeah. speaking, he still has Igor's brain, though. Should yeah that were theoretically he's had Igor's brain for the last four movies, unless yeah. it, unless those circuits have been fried with all the reanimating Head trauma, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, drowning in quicksand. Been, yeah. yeah, he. I mean, the Frankenstein's monster has CTE. Let's face it; like the concussions, <laughs> he's taken many blows to that. Yes, you yeah. know. He's been how many times He's, has that guy been lit on fire too? Many, so many. Yeah, I mean, it's like more than Freddy and Jason combined. I think by yeah, the end of this, I was going to say at least three of the last four yeah. movies. Well, it's the first movie. <laughs> then yeah, okay, you, yeah. Got, you got the first movie. You have uh, kind of in in Son of Frankenstein, the Sulfur Pit. Um, Okay. There's fire involved there. And then you end up with yeah. uh, House of Frankenstein. He's on fire. Uh, then he's on fire at the end of House of, House of Dracula. Dracula. And then here. One of those, they borrow footage from Ghost, too. Because yeah, yeah. I yeah. remember yeah, the House at of the Dracula. end of Ghost, he gets yeah. completely. Yeah. So, I mean, there's like four or five of the eight movies in this franchise. Set <laughs> on fire. I, I don't have a lot on him. But I just want to point out at the end of not not at the end. I just want to point out that Charles Bradstreet is Dr. Stevens. He fills the role of the like handsome gentleman who has the role of uh, the basically the um, personality of like tapioca. Pudding. Right. Yeah. Like, He's the, the, the guy. Guy God, real buddy. Yeah. 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 He's like, you know, like, I'll tell you what's, uh, you know, my patience is being tried right now. Yeah. I want answers. And yeah, then he gets yeah. like conked on the head and yep. removed from the picture. And that <laughs> until he needs to step up like, and do the, the heroic thing at the end and, like, and get the other like, love interest, like steal the other love interest away <laughs> by virtue yeah. of being handsome. Lord, I, and there. I, I do. Yeah. Luke Costello is kind of a shitty boyfriend <laughs> yes. because he has this whole. Yes. So, so he's 
he has this whole like he's like oh sandra you send me and he's mm-hmm. like doing all lovey-dovey and he's like at the arms over the head and he's acting like cupid's like struck him with a love arrow and and he's like super excited for the masquerade ball and all it takes is one little peck on the lips from and don't get me wrong like jane randolph like mm-hmm. very lovely yeah. woman oh yeah like joan joan raymond insurance investigator beautiful woman mm-hmm. uh or as bud abbott would call her like what a dame you know like who are these dames <laughs> that are falling for him um and I love how Bud is like just assuming that like, well, if, if Wilbur gives me one of them, they're going to fall for me. Like, I love the logic. That's just how it works in the 40s. It's just how it works. Like, just give me one and they'll automatic. Like, not how it works, Chick. Um, no. which, what a name, Chick. Um, Chick. Chick Young. Chick Young. Um, mm-hmm. With like the balding, the increasingly like, going back hairline. Mm-hmm. Um, shitty boyfriend. Like, yeah. as I'm saying, like immediately let ready to cast aside Sandra for Joan, but not give her up in the most like Fred Flintstone. I have to be at my kid's game and the stag meeting at the same time, kind Mm -hmm. of energy. Like, you know, one of those like plots that you would expect to see on like an episode of the honeymooners or the Flintstones or something. He brings his second date to his first dates home. Yeah. That's, and doesn't make any like attempt to explain any of it. Like that is brazen. That is brazen, I, sir. I did catch at one point when Sandra asks, who's that? He's like, oh, that's Chick State. Just kind of slides that right in. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's Chick State. And then he makes the face when, when Dr. Stevens is like, I'll go. And he's like, mm-hmm, makes the face. <laughs> but not, not the best boyfriend in no. the history of, you know, I don't know. Brian, have you ever pulled a move like that? Oh, just out of curiosity. <laughs> I, that would be a big fat no. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know. And I'm, I I may look like Luke Costello, but that's about where the similarities are. <laughs> All right. So. so before we wrap up, let's talk about the, I think where this movie really shines is that third act where we get you know, we've talked about how like meets Frankenstein. We don't get a lot of Wolfman Frankenstein interaction, right? That it's like three minutes and it's a bit of a letdown. Um, they don't fight enough. Um, I think what you get here, like this more than makes up for it. You yeah. get really that whole third act. You get Lou interacting with the Wolfman. You get the, whole sequence through the castle mm-hmm. where they're kind of running amok yeah and you're inner you're kind of like weaving in the fight between dracula and the wolfman and them trying to get away from frankenstein does does it hurt the wolfman at all that he's kind of reduced to like a comic punchline for lou costello where he's kind of like prancing about mm-hmm. And and I still um, think he's being wolfmanish though. I, I think okay. he's yeah. even though you know, like he like when they're chasing him through the the sort of the wooded area, for example, you know, and he kind mm-hmm. of is he gets stuck behind the tree and he trips over him. It's like it, it still seems like he's behaving as the wolfman would. Uh, right. even sure. though he's getting tripped up along the way and sort of getting stuck in different places. So for me, it still works. It's still, it doesn't feel like they're just 
making fun of the monsters. And I think that's what really kind of makes the movie work because only Bud and Lou are in a comedy. Everyone else is in a monster movie. Okay. 100%. And, and so because of that, you take, when you take the, and this is true of a movie uh, that I wanted to mention too, from 44 called The Uninvited. This is a really funny movie with Ray Meland and all this stuff. It's a ghost movie. Everyone is sort of, it's not a comedy per se, but it's got a lot of comedic bits in it. But the ghost is taking taken 100% seriously as a okay. real thing. And that is kind of the way the monsters operate in this movie. They're treated like they are in their respective franchises. But, um, and most of the people, except for Bud and Lou, kind of are you know, they're Evelyn anchors and they're, you know, they're not those people obviously, but they're sort of filling those similar roles as those uh, other people, you know, your David manners etc. you know? So, um, I, I feel like that is what makes this movie really work as a horror comedy. Yeah. You take these two really funny guys and you put them in the middle of a universal monster movie. And how does that change the whole dynamic? And, the monsters are still being a hundred percent true to themselves. I mean, that's, I think the magic of getting the guys who've done it so many times before to do it is they're taking their stuff. They know how to play their stuff and Bud and Lou know how to do their stuff. And it's just these, this perfect storm of these two genres matching together. So, so, so perfectly because they both understand the rules that each of them is operating under. Yeah. And the thing is horror and comedy operate under similar, uh, sort of similar rules in some ways. I mean, you, you are, you timing, yeah, timing and you build to a punchline, you know, whether that's Mm -hmm. a gore effect or whatever, or or some, or a jump scare, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a, a lot of really good horror comedy directors have kind of pointed that out. Yeah. You know, I hear Joe Dante say things like that. I was going to say Dante, Dante yeah. says that all the time. He, yeah. he understands. I think personally, I think he understands horror comedy consistently uh, better than just about any other director I can think of. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, yeah. Well, I think they allow most of the comedy between the monster and Abbott and Costello to sit on Frankenstein's shoulders. Sure. Because he's kind of the least serious of the three at this point. Like he's kind of been relegated to the background role. Mm-hmm. So you see like when, when Frankenstein's monster lays eyes on Luke Costello, he does like that kind of comedic double take. Like he's scared sure. of Luke Costello. Yeah. And you know, that would not work if it was the Wolfman or Dracula doing that. Like that would be too silly, but it's right. okay when it's Frankenstein's monster. Um, it's okay to have like Lou Costello sit on Frankenstein's lap and mm-hmm. have him do the bit. Part of it is because of the discrepancy in size. Yeah. Right. It works because of the visual, um, cue, but that wouldn't work if it was Dracula. It, like, it would be demeaning to the character of Dracula. Agreed. Um, you know, it's kind of funny to watch him punch the wolf man in the snout or to kind of like kick him in the seat of the pants. Like that is kind of funny, but it kind of lowers the character a little bit as that's, well. That's another Abbott and Costello bit, though, mm-hmm. is like um, 
Abbott would say, look, I'll dress up like this bear. Then you go in and wrestle the bear in front of these people. And then it's a real bear. And, but yeah, and then a real bear gets out. So, I mean, it's literally just that bit. They're just, again, we're transplanting that into a horror movie. And I love the fact that for the back half of this movie, you've got Talbot and uh, chick basically wearing the exact same outfit, running around everywhere, dressed like twins. Mm -hmm. Which I think surprisingly is how Grizzly Man from Werner Herzog. (laughs) (laughs) So shockingly. Um, Nice. So I do, you know, there's some very good, I think like the, it is like the end of all of the universal monsters. Like they all kind, cause they don't come back at the end of this one. Like, mm-hmm. so you assume that like, this is what does in the Wolfman, like that fall from the top of the castle at the end. Uh, and you must assume that he tears apart Dracula when he's in bat form at the end and that Frankenstein finally, for whatever reason burns up. Um, but you get some great physical comedy between the comedy duo and these three monsters, including Costello taking a real punch to the face. Yeah. He he would, when, uh, Glenn strange punched through the door, apparently, uh, Costello missed his mark and he took a real shot to the jaw and it looks so good that Barton's like, screw it, print it. Like, that looks great. Let's keep You see him step in. forward. Like, you see him just step off of his mark to lean into Abbott, mm-hmm. and that punch comes through. And I don't know if he's not expecting it. or what. Mm-hmm. He plays it, though, like it was absolutely yep. supposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if he did that on purpose to try to, like, sell like, an extra gag or what. But, like, oh. he actually took a punch from Glenn Strange, yep. which I think is amazing. And I love the bit where he breaks the fourth wall, and he pulls the... <laughs> black piece of I cloth love that. out yes <laughs> that, that couldn't have been that had to be huh. i mean that's just that, has to be. <laughs> that, that that's such a great moment it is and then of course the immediate follow-up he thinks i'm dracula like <laughs> yeah. that's great perfect. Yeah. perfect just two dummies just two absolute because that's the thing is like chick is also a big dummy oh yeah, you know, yeah. like you think like, like you think Wilbur is dumb, but Chick is not that much higher on the intelligence scale than Wilbur. And I think that's what's kind of great. It's like Chick thinks he's a bright boy, but he really is not that much higher up on the scale. Yeah. Uh, and they've tied their wagons to one another and they're both going to kind of plot along here. What else do we have for this movie before we kind of sign off for the day? I I was curious as to whether or not this was like the origin of the rivalry between vampires and werewolves. Like you get the Wolfman and Dracula kind of like squaring off it and it, the movie kind of makes it feel like they have this like storied rivalry across the Mm -hmm. ages. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, I don't think we've seen that in any of the movies leading up to this, but that's like the thing now, like the underworld Mm -hmm. series, the, Twilight series, it's always vampire versus werewolf, vampire versus werewolf. Like, is this where that comes from? If, if not, um, like, subconsciously? Possibly. Or yeah, it definitely feels like the first time, and you have, like, Chaney confronting Lugosi saying, Count Dracula, we meet again. And you don't know, like, why they're confronting one another, because even though Dracula and the Wolfman are in the two previous movies – they never confront one another. Like they don't right. share any screen time with one another. Well, in House of Frankenstein, like Dracula feels like the B story because the A story ran short. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. is really what it feels. They just yeah. very it's much a weird tack that on anthological feel to it at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then it abandons that. Is what it feels yeah. like. Like we don't see any of those characters anymore. It's yeah. like we wanted to make this a full movie, but we kind of forgot how, and so here's some Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Here's very little Frankenstein's yeah. monster. Just Mostly Wolfman. Another thing about the Wolfman that I noticed while watching this is he only turns into the Wolfman when he sees the full moon. I mean, he literally mm-hmm. is like, the full moon has obviously come out, but it has had no control. It's like it's like a cartoon that, you know, it's walking off the cliff and it, mm-hmm. you don't fall till you look down. That's kind of what it felt like, because he would look up and yeah. he'd see the moon, then he would turn into a werewolf. It reminds me also of like those like cartoons where like if the full moon was obscured by like cloud cover or something, nothing would happen. Yeah. And so you'd have someone like going back and forth for comedic effect. It kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. A little bit too. So it's just one of those is the cure for like hamptropy must be, you know, windowless rooms or something. I don't know. Yeah. Blackout shades. Yeah. You solved it. Room darkening shades and he's fine. Problem solved. And once again, like Larry Talbert in human form, much more dangerous, like much more prone to like throw hands with like the slightest provocation. Yeah. Like at one point, like all Lou does is make a very innocuous joke, like, oh, when the moon comes out, I'm gonna turn into a wolf. Like, yeah, you and twenty million other men. Like, that's a great joke. <laughs> it's such and a what does joke. he do? He's like grabs him and starts throttling him. Throttle and starts, him I'll tear yeah. you limb from limb. It's like, whoa, buddy, like <laughs> save it for the wrestling ring here. That escalated friend. quickly. Yeah, you know, like that's called assault, my friend. Exactly. I don't think Ooh. it was called that in the forties, though. Um it was called like shaking hands in the forties. <laughs> Just called men's issues. Yeah. <laughs> Just called working it out. Yeah. Um, is it a missed opportunity not to have Costello go full Renfield in this movie? Cause I, oh. I, I kept wanting to see that, yeah. like mm-hmm. just channeling Douglas Fry, I think would have been absolutely incredible. And the fact that we don't just bums me the fuck out having him eating bugs by the last acts. Yeah. yeah something I love, like I love Dwight Fry's, you know, backwards laugh in that movie. <laughs> Dwight Fry, yeah. Um, it's my favorite. Yeah. Like it, I, I would have, I would have loved, loved to see that. I think that's a a real, a real swing and a miss there, but it's okay. This is, this is a wrap. What did Universal do with their monster movies after this? Like they don't completely stop making monster movies. (laughs) They told, Uh, they told hammer, you know, make sure you don't use any of our stuff. We're not going to make it, you know, don't use any of our stuff. Uh, yeah. And look, uh, we'll even distribute it for you. Yeah, until we become partners, mm-hmm. then you can use the makeup. Right. Yeah. What happens? Uh, so, I mean, they they kind of stop after this. Like all their big monsters, they just kind of fold up shop. I think, you know, like you said, like we said earlier in the episode, they're pushing for more like prestige stuff. And so they're kind of not interested in the monsters. They're not interested in these cheap little quick cash grabs. Um, they do lean on the Abbott and Costello films again, like we mentioned for next, for the next few years, although those aren't exclusively horror adjacent, like you get meet captain kid or meet the Keystone cops. Like those aren't, those kind of go all over the place. They don't sit in horror, although most of them do toy in that area. That's not where they live. Um, we do get in 53, we do get, it came from outer space, which is a sci-fi horror film. Yeah. That's also universal's first 3d movie. And then the year after that, we get really the closest they ever get to kind of trying to restart the Universal Monsters. And he kind of 
retroactively becomes one of the universal monsters with the creature from the black lagoon. That's a three picture franchise over three years. Uh, creature from the black lagoon, uh, revenge of the creature and the creature walks among us mm-hmm. are those three. All uh, you bangers. also get, they're all great too, actually. Yeah. I own that <laughs> yeah. box set. It's, yeah. it's a good one. Uh, you get like tarantula in 55, the Amazing. mole people in 56, but like, it it just seems genre seems like less and less a concern. And so, yeah, by the end of the decade, they're, they're putting ha- the hammer stuff and, and a lot of other British horror, they're just uh, distributing that in America and kind of, I think they would try to, they, they do another Dracula movie in 79 mm-hmm. and that doesn't really spawn yeah. anything else. And then the next serious attempt to try to reboot the franchise is in 99 with the mummy and then again in 2004 with Van Helsing. And I mean, the mummy gets a, a trilogy that kind of goes off the rails real fast. Um, and then uh, Van Helsing goes literally nowhere. Uh, that was an early one that we covered on the disenfranchised podcast was Van Helsing. Um, and I think the logical place for a sequel would be to team them up with Rick and Evie from the mummy movies and, and just do that. But no, you can't do that. So yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah. We've seen attempts, like you just mentioned, The Mummy in 99, Van Helsing, and we've seen like The Dark Universe, the attempts Ugh. with that. Yeah. And now The Dark Universe is going to become a theme park a element, right? Theme park, theme park Universal yeah. Studios, where it's really going to be like a small, mm-hmm. it sounds like it's not going to be like a massive theme park. It's going to be like no. a small section with like one or two themed rides. Kind of like their islands of adventure area where you've got like a couple of Marvel themed rides or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird because it looks like it's not really, uh, it looks like it's trying to modernize the monsters again, rather than sort of latching onto, you know, kind of what the icon that people know and love. Mm -hmm. They're trying to dark universize it. If that's a term. It is now. And I wonder because last year we had two Dracula films. We yep. had Renfield and we had Last Voyage of the Demet- uh, Demeter. Yeah. Demeter. 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 And I enjoyed both of those yeah. movies for different reasons. I found Renfield was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and I thought Last Voyage was actually like really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed both of those immensely for what they were. Yeah. And we've seen different attempts at reviving frankenstein-esque type of movies the latest one being lisa frankenstein which i just caught again this week i've gone to see it twice in theaters Hmm. i really loved it but it hasn't done major coin at the box office yeah Uh, for me it it did it felt more like a zombie movie than a frankenstein movie but that's just me sure um i think what we do we are seeing a lot of frankenstein things but they're sort of frankenstein tangential um, yeah, like yeah, yeah like poor, like poor things, um, mm-hmm. which is I I think a really terrific movie. Um, poor things is really yeah. Good. Um, and uh, then we got GT. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Guillermo del Toro. I'm going to say it that way. I'm not going to try and do the initials because mm-hmm. I'll mix them up. Uh, doing working on his, but there's also been an announcement of a new Dracula. Yep. Uh, which I don't. It sounds like it's going to be like an Caleb origin story. Yeah. Yeah. It's not another Caleb one. Landry Jones and Christopher 
Waltz. Um, and who's directing that? I don't remember off the top of my head, to be honest. Okay. But I was surprised to see Dracula after, you know, the cancellation of Karen Kasama's. And then... At, That's the one I'm the, really bummed we're not going to get. I am too. Um, uh, we also have the announcement of uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal doing Bride of Frankenstein. It's sort of revived because mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. went away for a while, but now it's, it seems to be coming mm-hmm. back. Um, but the universal we, monsters are, it, it's, uh, it's hard to say the Wolfman keeps on coming up and down too, as a possibility. Yeah. Luke Besson, Mike is directing the Caleb Landry Dones, Christopher. Oh, oh interesting. Dracula movie. Yeah, that is interesting. What is Lee one doing next? Lee one he's doing a Wolfman movie. He's supposed to be doing the Wolfman. Yeah. That's supposed yeah. to come out later this year. I don't think it will. Okay. Yeah. I think it was probably so, delayed by the strikes. I would imagine. Right. And he, you know, his last hit was the invisible man, right. which was a very mm-hmm. different, very, very different take on the invisible man, but it was incredible. It was yeah, so it was good. great. Yeah. yeah. That was the last was, movie I saw before lockdown. Mm-hmm. But very different. It was yeah. a very different take on the material. And I wonder if there's still outside of like persons like us that grew up with these movies that have like a great affinity for the classic monsters. Like I would describe us as like eighties and nineties kids, yeah. which was like the last period that like these classic monsters were like really ubiquitous in the culture. Yeah. Right. Is there really a thirst for more Dracula movies? Is there really a thirst for more mm-hmm. of the classic Frankenstein movies with like the bolts and the neck and the sure. flat top? Or is that time come and gone? It's IP though. Yeah. The box office would suggest that people are not thirsting for Dracula. Um, Or apparently uh, with a movie like Lisa Frankenstein that has Frankenstein in the title, Mm -hmm. not doing so hot. uh, It's a little bit, I don't know. It's a little bit nervous. It makes me nervous, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I I just think that people like, it doesn't matter if the audience is there for it or not. I think they're going to still try to make it work because it's, it's IP. It's a name and it's in the public domain now. So like anyone can do a Frankenstein movie, like anyone can do a Dracula movie. Like we can put Dracula anywhere we want now because he's in the public domain. Like it's, it's their stories that are key and going to keep getting told and it's going to take someone with a, a unique or fresh perspective, or maybe someone that's willing to deconstruct it back to its core elements. Mm -hmm before anyone's really going to care again. Yeah. And, and to be honest, in the indie realm, these movies do continue to go on. I mean, the number of Frankenstein, I, I have been keeping a running list of every Frankenstein movie I can think of that, um, is being like announced or, um, has been released in the past, maybe 20 years even. And the list is getting very, very, very long. Um, You know, like Frankenstein's Army and Victor Frankenstein. They're big movies. They're small movies. They're all. There's a Santa Stein, Frankenshark, Mm -hmm. or Sharkenstein. (laughs) I think. Uh, You know, I mean. So there's the good, the bad, and the ugly out there. Yeah. Um, So it's still happening. It's just you know what. What is it going to be and what is going to really break through and and be sort of, you know, like in 99, The Mummy was a huge hit. I mean, that was the thing that was like, bam, all of a sudden you had this big um, successful moment with these movies again. And then 
people were kind of chasing after that again uh, in the same same space. And then um, I think Lee Winnell, if it hadn't been for the lockdown, I think the Invisible Man would have gone on to, and it wouldn't, it wasn't unsuccessful, but it wasn't as successful as it would have been had COVID not struck yeah. right after. And it was a pretty big hit. Yeah. Like it was still like a pretty large success. Like it did really well for him. Yeah. And I know Blumhouse was really happy with the result so yeah. much so that they want follow-ups and they want him to do, like gave him the reins, like, all right, you want to do a werewolf movie? You want to mm-hmm. do your Wolfman movie? Like, go ahead. I think like Channing Tatum was the one that was originally tied yeah. to that. And I'm not Ryan sure Gosling still him. was was yeah. attached to it, Gosling I know, was. at one point. Um, so we'll see where that goes. And I'm excited for it. Like anything, you know, Lee one is going to do. Yeah. I'm going to go watch. Cause I think it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I think um, his, uh, I, his two feature films have been very exciting. Uh, both upgrade yeah. and, uh, and uh, upgrade. invisible man. But yeah. I don't know if there's that thirst for like the classic mad scientist bringing the monster right. back to life in the, it, it, you know, if anyone's going to, have some success with it, it will be someone like a Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I would agree. Like I think if anyone's going to be, well, be able to do it, I think it would be someone like him. And he essentially did a reimagining of the creature from the Black Lagoon with the shape of water. So, um, right. so I, I trust monsters in his hands, you know, in, in that sense, I think. Yeah. All right. So I think that does it. I think we have put another franchise to bed. Yeah. Um, you know, unless Del Toro's movie is massively successful and there's <laughs> more Frankenstein spinoffs that come from that, um, we're going to put the monster away for a little bit. We're putting him on ice or in the sulfur pit. There or, we go. Setting him on know, fire. One of, the, one of those. Setting things. him on fire. Yeah. So, Brian, what do you have coming up? What are you working on with Movies for Life? And what are you writing at the moment? Uh, yeah. Well, um, first of all, I want to say this has been an absolute pleasure to cover every one of these Frankenstein movies from Universal. Um, it's it has I, been a lot of fun. Yeah. And I learned a lot in this whole process uh, from the different guests and from the research we've gone through and everything. It, I... I picked up lots of things then I thought I kind of knew everything about this uh, franchise, but I did not. It, it, I learned a lot from this. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, as far as my writing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for doing this and for asking me to be a part of it. I really do appreciate it. Um, as far as my writing goes, uh, I've had a piece recently come out on spring, uh, the Morehead and Benson film. Um, and, I had a piece on the burbs come out that kind of made the rounds there mm-hmm. something like 600 shares on Facebook. Mm-hmm. It, uh, yeah, which was crazy. Uh, Joe Dante shared it, um, and all kinds of things. So that was pretty cool. And it's not because of me, it's because of the movie and I'm fully acknowledged that, but, uh, it was really fun to revisit that movie for its, uh, 35th anniversary. Um, I've got a piece coming out soon for my column over at Bloody Disgusting um, about the Black Cat from 1934. Uh, a lot of it is nice. about the rivalry between uh, Lugosi and Karloff, um, and then also between Carl Lemley Jr. and Carl Lemley Sr., or sort of the focuses mm-hmm. of that article. 
And um, I learned a lot with that too. Um, some, some things about Karloff and Lugosi's relationship that are fascinating. Um, and as far as movies for life, um, we are going to be doing some uh, Oscar retro <laughs> looking things. Uh, so we're taking a look at a couple of best picture winners. Um, we did Rebecca, the Hitchcock film and the apartment uh, Billy from Billy Wilder. Uh, so that should be coming out oh, nice. in March. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, Michelle hasn't quite decided on what her nominated film will be that didn't win. Uh, but I have chosen the right stuff to cover. Okay. So we're going to talk about the right Excellent. stuff and probably Mildred Pierce. So, Ooh, okay. So should be an Very interesting cool. uh, dive into those movies. And that's on the movies for life podcast. Yeah. Steven, how about yourself? What's coming up with disenfranchised disenfranchised? We, uh, we just wrapped up uh, all of our, we're wrapping up now our February stuff. Actually, we've got one more that we're recording tomorrow. Uh, a, our show within a show straight up. Uh, we had the great Mike Snoonian on earlier in the month to discuss the uh, Indonesian or uh, yeah, no Indonesian uh, superhero film Valentine, um, which was um, that was something, something we talked about. Um, and uh, yeah, coming up, we're going to do, I think John Carter. Uh, we've got, I had our buddy uh, Samuel Dumas come on to talk John Carter with us. Cause uh, Dune is coming out. So there's there a, go. A couple of desert set sci-fi epics for you. Um, and uh, we've got some guests uh, coming up this month that uh, I'm really excited about. Uh, one new and another returning. Um, maybe someone connected to this show. So you'll just have to wait for that one. I'm not going to spoil anything on that one. So, um, But no, we've got some good stuff coming up. And then, of course, uh, if you have uh, Tubi, you can watch uh, the movie that all three of the disenfranchised boys were in, uh, Circle City Supernatural, free with ads on Tubi. Um, tell all your friends. Uh, if you like micro-budget Excellent. horror, it's a thing you can watch. Excellent. So, listeners, for us, make sure that you are rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're available on all the platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, YouTube, you name it, we're there. Uh, make sure that if you can become a patron, go to patreon.com pod and the pendulum. And for a couple bucks, you can get all of our bonus content. It's like a couple bucks a month and you get up to like 50 hours of content that is up there right now with a lot more that is coming. And that is a goes a long way to keeping the lights on and like allowing us to purchase like the books, the movies, the Blu-rays, all of the additional material that supports the research for the show. Uh, so we can give you the best possible content. That's at patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. Here's what we have coming up. Oh, and go to pod and uh, it's an easy way to go ahead and like get all of our back episodes. There's like 220 something episodes at this point. So you literally have hundreds of hours of material to go through if you are new to the show and like dozens of franchises that we've covered. Speaking of which, here's what we have coming up. So we are taking next week off in terms of us recording an episode, but we have a bonus show that is coming out for y'all. Uh, Ariel has recorded an episode for Ghouls, 
Um, but Ghouls is on hiatus at the moment. So she and a friend of the show, Rebecca McCallum, have recorded their own conversation on the Human Centipede trilogy. Uh, and she asked, like, hey, we need a home for this episode. Would you mind, like, posting it on our feed? And I said, absolutely. I would love to do that. So it is a chance to hear Ariel and Rebecca talk about those three movies. And I'm sure that we'll get into that franchise at some point in our own and do, like, individual episodes on those. But it's something in between um, this episode and our next franchise. So we'll have that as a little bonus for you all next week. And then after that, we begin our next franchise, which is going to be the Paranormal Activity series. So we'll be covering all seven Paranormal Activity films. We'll be uh, recording our next episode of that in a couple weeks uh, and then posting our first show on that. We have some really cool guests lined up for the first few movies. Our co-hosts have started to sign on for those episodes as well. I'm really excited because I love the first few movies in that franchise and I love the last movie and I'm not so hot on the fourth movie (laughs) in a couple of them will be first time watches. Um, And that should be interesting. I will be talking a lot. What's fascinating to me is talking about that first movie and how it was created Mm -hmm. and also like where horror was in the late aughts and the early teens, like the turn of the decade. Like that is the stuff that fascinates me. So I'm really kind of interested to kind of have that conversation with our guests and co-hosts. But that'll be in two weeks. So until then, stay spooky and thank you. We hope you've enjoyed our deep dive into all of these Frankenstein movies. Like I said, Brian, I've loved talking all these movies with you and it's been a thrill and an education and an absolute blast. So we got to throw another classic series on here for next time. I'm totally game for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So next time, everyone have a great week. Bye.